Fuck what they talk about. I've been getting my cake and running wild since a little child. Yeah. Getting it every day, I'm working sun up till the sun down. Yeah. I'm getting it every day, these niggas hating, trying to see how I do this shit. Bitch, I'm not new. What's up, guys? This is Jake Carlisle, and welcome to the Capital Gains Podcast, where we share our experiences on how to flip and invest in real estate, the stock market, and all things fitness. Join us as we dive deep into the world of self-development and get ready to make some capital gains. What is up, guys? It is Jake. Um, I'm going to be doing a solo episode today. I've got a great guest for you guys. Um, he is honestly, um, I haven't known him very long, and... To be honest with you, you know how I met him was he reached out to me on Facebook. And I was like, hey, I've seen you a lot at TrueFit. And I was like, man, I've never seen you in my life. And he was like, oh, well, that hurts. <laughs> um, so, but it's it's become good and uh, and we're going we're gonna to tell a story today. So, uh, pleased to bring on Robert Irving. How are you? I'm good, man. I appreciate y'all uh, y'all having me on here. Absolutely. I think you guys will get a lot of value out of this one. Um, you know, there's a lot of a lot of education and, and knowledge here, and so um, I think you'll be surprised at at how good this one is. So um, let's get rolling. So yeah, um, like Jake said, my name's Robert Irving. Um, you know, we met I guess at the gym, um, and really what I was doing is I, I kind of. I go to the gym a lot, and I'll kind of tell my story through here, but um, I've met a lot of good quality guys from the gym, and um, I power lifted a lot at A&M, and so one of the things that when you're at the gym and, and you have a back, background in powerlifting, you know, you kind of have a, you look for other guys that are strong, and so, because, you know, I, I like to lift a lot of weight and everything, and so I'm constantly, like, looking for guys that have good form, that are really strong. And I saw you in like your just your ginormous quads over there, and I was like, you know what, this dude's gonna move some serious weight around. And then uh, I wasn't disappointed, but you know, I was like, okay. And so that, that's why I reached out. Was really I was like, I had no idea what you did for a living or anything, but I was like, some way somehow I've got to figure out how this guy has quads that big because mine aren't that big. Um, but yeah, that's why I reached out originally. Oh man. Well, he, he said he likes to go to the gym, but um, he just kind of walks around like a like a gorilla with his. Uh, what shoes do you wear? It's like it's like <laughs> they're Crocs. I'm waiting for Crocs. a sponsorship. Yeah, I got them on right now. They're, they're and he, but he wears Crocs. them half on, half off, and so it's just real funny. He'll walk in, deadlift 600 pounds, and leave, and just kind of walk <laughs> out with his Crocs on. Yeah, so uh, the Croc actually just bought Hey Dude. Really? And so yeah, it was for like three that's, billion that's dollars. That's genius because yeah. Crocs kind of suck. Yeah, exactly. And so they they basically created a Hey Dude. Um, that's they, good. They created a uh, a Hey Dude product, and then they eventually just bought it. So I, hmm. I bought the, the Hey Dude product. So, but yeah, I'll um, I guess I'll just dive into from the beginning um, and, and where I'm from. So I'm from a, a small town over in East Texas uh, called Hemphill. Um, it's outside of Jasper. We don't have a Walmart. That's how small we are. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so two A high school growing up, which would now be the new three A since they reclassified the zones. Um, Went to school there, was really kind of uh, a mischievous child. I have two older sisters that are uh, a whole lot smarter than I am. Uh, one was valedictorian, the other one was like salutatorian. Mm -hmm. And so when they met me, um, you know, all the teachers were like, oh, great, we get another one. And I was just a massive disappointment because <laughs> uh, I really didn't care about school a whole lot. Um, it just wasn't my thing, you know. And even in college, even though I've got like three degrees, um, I just never was focused on like being a top student and like always writing down notes and like studying and going to class. Like I was more focused on 
powerlifting, working out, um, and then work. That was were kind of my things. And so uh, ultimately, you know, grew up there in a small town, did all the sports, the academics, was part of the UIL team, caused a lot of problems, but didn't really have a ton of guidance or like, you know, no passion for really a whole lot. Right. Um, left there, moved to A&M. Luckily, moved in with both of my sisters, so I lived with them um, for like the first year of college. They kind of steered me right, got me going. Um, I worked full time at the rec center, so I worked in the weight room, uh, which really is like where I met Asa and Josh and a lot of these guys mm-hmm. that you know. Uh, it's funny because that was in 2012. You know what I mean? And those guys still work for me yeah. nine years later. Yeah. Um, so I worked full time at the rec, and I was a powerlifter. Um, so I powerlifted for five years at A&M and it's kind of a funny story so you know I, I in high school um, my coach was just like hey you're, you're really strong we're going to take you to this thing called powerlifting and I was like I don't really know what that is um, so he took me and you know did well went to regionals won regionals uh, went to state and didn't do great at state uh, I, I was um, didn't really understand how to use the equipment or anything right so when I got to A&M, um, I, I was powerlifting. And one of the biggest things here is, was structure for me. I worked full-time, I powerlifted full-time, and I was a student full-time. So I didn't have any time to mess around and do any mm-hmm. stupid, mischievous stuff. Yep. Um, because, you know, it, one of my quotes in here I have for you is, a stagnant mind is the devil's playground. You know, it's like I, I'm the kind of guy that I have to stay busy because if I just sit around and do nothing, then my mind wanders and I, end spiral. Up, I get in trouble. Yep. And so... I was always an extremely busy person in college, but um, so in powerlifting, I remember going to the first couple of meets one year, and uh, we went down to LSU, and uh, and it's funny, you know, when you're in the weight room, it's kind of like I told you about you, looking at you at the gym, it's like you start sizing dudes up. I'm not a very big guy. Maybe if it's really hot outside, I might be 5'8", if I stretch, um, <laughs> and I, you know, I walk around about a buck 90, buck 95, uh, but I competed at 181, and so... You know, if you're 181 pounds, most of those guys are pretty lean. And yeah. so, you know, when you get up in the big boy section, you know, the 220s, 240s, you can be a big dude. But at 180, you're going to be a lean, lean guy. So we're in the warm-up rooms, and we're kind of, you know, sizing everybody up, and you're looking at people, and you're like, you know, that, that dude looks strong. You know what I mean? And you yeah. kind of tell. And, uh, well, I kept getting beat. And I kept losing to these guys that I'm looking at going, like, there's just no way. Like, there's no way that guy's stronger than I am. Yeah. And uh, I finally figured it out, and it was the equipment. And so they had more money than I did. So they could buy, you know, a $3,000 suit and knee wraps and knee sleeves and upright insert platforms and like all this stuff. And like, essentially, you're a walking zombie. Never even heard of that. Dude, you'd be surprised. <laughs> I've seen guys that can't squat, raw squat 405, squat 700 in a suit. Yeah, no that's, how, that's how much it'll add. Yeah. Damn. And so that was kind of in 2012 when I switched from doing the equip stuff to just the raw. Right. And so, and that's really where I saw the benefit was just going raw where you can wear a belt if you want, you know, I don't live with a belt, uh, and then you can wear knee sleeves and that's really it. Yeah. Um, you get the shoes, but so that was kind of where my trajectory took off. And so I won a national title in 2013 and then I won again in 2015. Um, and that was in grad school. Um, but you know, the thing about powerlifting, like what I really liked the most, and, and I tell people this not all the time, but like whenever I really get into deep conversation is like. You know, in football, right, a quarterback can slip and fall, right? You can run a good route and get caught up. But 600 pounds has never woken up and took a day off, right? It Gravity never says, like, ah, you know what, I'm going to sleep in today. Mm-hmm. Like, it's always there. And right. so that's why, like, at the gym, whenever I see people that are strong or 
it's like there's a, a mutual level of respect there because you know that guy's worked for that stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, he never just walked in and just said, now, don't get me wrong, my uncle tells me all the time, like, that I was wired hot, you know, and it's just like there's some guys, and I, I don't disagree, that it's like biomechanically I'm made to lift more weight than Asa, right, because he's long and lanky and I'm short and stubby, right? right. So I'm just physically made to lift more, but um, – you know, I forget. I'm, I'm going to go on some random tangents. You, so you still don't draw me uh, pull 600 pounds by just not <laughs> by just not lifting, yeah, not working yeah. out. Yeah, no, right. that's fair. That's fair. So, yeah, the work has to be done. Yeah. Um, so to keep going through A and M. So I got an undergrad um, in business and, and human resources. And when I finished up undergrad, I was finishing up at the rec center. I was working full time upstairs. Um, Managing about 70 guys. So that's when I was managing Josh and Ace and a bunch of these other dudes. And, uh, you know, really enjoyed it. Um, it taught me a lot. And then ultimately went over to mechanical engineering. Um, and that's where, so my sister worked there. And she got me a job managing this uh, 3D print lab. Uh, so I went to grad school for occupational safety and health, uh, which is where I met Dr. Benden. I think I told you a little bit about him. Um, but... You know, so I was working for this department of mechanical engineering, still doing powerlifting. Uh, I was running all the 3D print labs and like this uh, this instrumentation room where we rented out all this high end equipment, and absolutely not qualified for this, right? <laughs> absolutely not. And so they hire me in, and this thing is a ginormous mess and everything. And I'll never forget this. So the first day, um, these student workers were in there, and I was like, look, like. You know, we had like $12 million worth of equipment. And if anybody's ever worked at A&M, and this is not a shot at A&M, I love Texas A&M, but like some of the stuff is so disorganized and there's just gobs of money laying around. So like when we found this uh, high-speed camera that took like 12,000 frames per second. They didn't even know they had it. It was worth like a quarter million dollars. Good Lord. They didn't even know it was in there, right? And so my first thing was like, all right, this is what we're going to do. We're going to take inventory of this entire room. It was like 5,000 square feet, floor to ceiling of crap. That guy quit. <laughs> just like, I'm done. I he quit. Said, nope. And I was that. like, okay. Not and me. so at one o'clock was the second shift. This next guy comes in and uh, I tell him what we're going to do. That guy quits. And so I go to my boss. I'm like, hey, both my student workers quit. And uh, and that's whenever I brought Asa over with me. And so he started working there with me and I hired some other guys. And, um, and yeah, so we, we kind of worked our way through there and Ultimately, had a really fun time, really enjoyed that job, um, did that full-time through grad school, and uh, we ran all the 3D printing labs, so we were kind of on the state-of-the-art with, like, Stratus and some of these uh, pieces of equipment, and then uh, taught some classes in SolidWorks and stuff, and, and so had a lot of fun, and um, ultimately what ended up happening there kind of leads into how I got into the, to the fire protection industry um, is... They hired a lady over in the business development side. And so she came in one day and, and asked me a bunch of like strange questions about, um, like, you're a full-time student mm-hmm. and you're a full-time employee. And and I knew where she was going with this. And she's like, it's not possible for you to work full-time and go to school full-time. Like, there's going to be – but, like, my boss and I had worked it out where I didn't have to, like, be there during the day on certain times and, like, Asa would cover my shift or whatever because I was just a salary, so it wouldn't, like, clock in, clock out. Long story short, her and I get sideways, and I end up leaving. And uh, this is where it goes back to the guys I meet at the gym. So I had met this dude in the gym. This is a true story. It's, it's a weird one, but it's true. <laughs> I had walked out of the shower at 530 in the morning, and uh, this dude looks at me and he's like, hey, man, you have a nice physique. And I was like, no homo, right? And I was just like, thanks, you know, whatever. 
and uh, his, this guy's name was Steven. And, um, and so him and I became really good friends. And he kept trying to hire me over the like course of like a year or so. And finally, I hit him up after you know me and this lady got crossways, and uh, I was like, "Hey, you know, I'd like to come work for you." And um, and so that that's kind of how I got started in the, the fire protection industry. Is I had a little bit of a background, so to to kind of rewind, um, I went through fire school in 2012. My dad's a 30 year firefighter out of Beaumont, and so I went through fire school, EMT school, aircraft rescue, hazmat, all that stuff. Um, but didn't like fall in love with it. Like it was fun. It was challenging. I think firefighting is a, is a great job. You have plenty of free time on the side to do some side hustles. You know, my dad did all that stuff. And so, um, but ultimately, you know, so whenever I went in to get into this industry, I knew a little bit, but I didn't understand like the, the industry as, as a whole. Right. Um, and so that's, yeah, that's how I got started. And, uh, was there anything we missed? I don't think so. No. Where are we at? You're right here at, at uh, okay. met, met like minded met like minded people at the gym. Yeah, yeah. So that was that was kind of Steven. and so um, he was a, a different cat. He was from New York, um, and so he was Air Force guy, and uh, did fire protection in the Air Force, and so he had seen a lot of stuff that we don't get to typically see. Like, you know, if you think about like the military, right? They're going to have a lot of airplanes and jets and stuff that we don't mm-hmm. just have in Bryan College Station, and right. so. Um, so yeah, ultimately he ended up leaving, um, and, and he actually went off and started his own company back up in New York. Um, but whenever I got started in fire protection, you know, it's kind of just the way that I, I do things. I put my head down, went to work, really wanted to learn and understand the industry. Um, I think a lot of people, like when they think about fire protection, they don't really know what it is. We're just another trade. So mechanical, electrical, plumbing, fire, right? We're kind of the MEPF side of it. Um, we go in the same time in new construction as if you're roughing in electrical or plumbing or mechanical HVAC. We try and beat the HVAC guy there. Uh, we're always the that's the two guys that butt heads. It's fire protection and HVAC guys because um, they're in our same ceiling space, right? right? So, but there's really two sides of this industry. So there's the service inspection, test, and maintenance side, and then there's the new construction side. So when I first started out, um, I started out in new construction, doing estimating and stuff, and then. Ultimately worked my way, went to the field. They, they made everybody go to the field. Um, and then came back and went over into service, did some inspection testing, did sales, did operations, engineering, and then moved my way up. Um, ultimately, that company paid for my uh, MBA program. Um, so they did like a, a leadership development MBA accelerated readiness program up in uh, Minnesota. So I spent one week out of the month um, up there for a while. It was brutal. Um, it gets really cold I up bet. there, yeah, yeah, I bet. like uh, like negative forty. Um, mm. Yeah, no, no, I don't recommend that for anybody. You know, ice fishing. Yeah, it was rough. Um, but you know, I really enjoyed working for that company. Um, they sent me for a week. I went to uh, Pikes Peak, Colorado. I don't know if I've ever told you about that. Mm-mm. So it's um, it's called FMI, and it's like an outside institute, and it is it is really good. Um, I'm hoping that I can I can get someone on board with doing it for some of my guys, but essentially what they do is called like a 360 feedback survey, right? And so they'll say, okay, here you are, and we're gonna take you know we're gonna take your peers, we're gonna take your subordinates, we're gonna take your family and friends, and we're gonna take your bosses, and we're gonna send them all this survey uh, about you, right? And it's got closed-ended questions, open-ended questions, and then uh, ultimately you're gonna take the same survey, right? And then we're gonna do a bunch of natural skills ability testing, and we're gonna understand 
how you read, how you write, how you learn. And then they're going to put this entire package together and they ship you off to Colorado to Pikes Peak for a week. And you don't know it, but there's a little shrink up there that has studied you and your entire life. And you don't know who that person is. And there's 50 other dudes up there and you're going through this entire week's worth of, I don't want to call it physically strenuous because it's a bunch of construction guys. And so, you know, most of them are old and out, out of shape. And so like they had a hard time with it, but it wasn't that bad. But nonetheless, it's extremely eye-opening. The point of it is, is to, to showcase your blind spots and what you're not aware of, right? Because mm-hmm. um, I'm a big believer in playing towards your strengths, not your weaknesses. Right. But I think you should be aware of your weaknesses. Like one of mine is a is sympathy and, and empathy, right? I don't, I'm not a very sympathetic person. I don't feel sorry for people at all. Um, but at least I know that, right? But I, I think I'll be better off in life if I play towards my strengths, right, and, and get better over here. But at least understand that, hey, you know what, I can be a little harsh, a little brash every once in a while. Right. So this 360 feedback survey kind of tells you that. It's like if everybody in your life, your peers, your subordinates, your family, friends, your bosses, they all say that, you know, you're rude. And then you come in here and say, I'm the nicest guy in the world. You're probably rude. Right. Yep. You know yeah, what I mean? Right, right. It's just kind of how this works. Right. And so uh, they sent me through a lot of leadership training like that. And I, I really uh, court them for for that and say that, you know, they taught me a lot about leadership because I came in as a, uh, a head down, headstrong. I, I referred to myself as like a piece of sandpaper. I was very gritty. Right. And I was just I was there to win at all costs and we're going to win. And we did win. I made a ton of money for that company. Um, and so ultimately, Worked my way all the way up uh, about four years, and then um, they made a decision uh, as a corporate uh, to go union uh, with the workforce, with the men in the, in the field. Um, I didn't necessarily support that decision. Um, I didn't really know much about the union. Do you know much about the union? Not really. So the union, and I, I'm not some union expert, and I'm not here to bash the union. Um, from what I understand, it, it's just not that prominent down here uh, in the South. Um, my dad was a part of the union. My grandfather died on the steps of the courthouse uh, fighting for the union, right? And so, like, my, my family has some history there. Um, not that that ties to me in, in any sort of weird way, but I just didn't think from a business decision that I wanted to support it. And they were, they needed the leadership group to support that. You know, of course, anytime you try and make a, a decision, and so, you know, if your leadership group doesn't support it, it's not going to go well. Right. Um, so ultimately we parted ways. Um, they let me go. Um, and then I started, I decided that I wanted to start my own company. Um, and so that's how I started, uh, better fire protection. Um, and that was in, I guess the end of 2018. Um, so not, not that long ago at all. No, no, not that long ago at all. Um, you may roll right into that. Just yeah. starting the company. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, left there, um, came here where we're at now, you know, in this building, um, and, and ultimately started Better Fire Protection, started with a couple other guys and an uh, investor, a private investor, and kind of had a vision for what I wanted. Um, I knew that I didn't want to start a small company. You know, I knew that from day one. Uh, one of the things that always gets me is like when people have like, you know, let's say it was betterfireprotection at gmail.com or whatever, you know, like that's my telltale from like, okay, that's a small company. Right, so immediately got all the big stuff set up from websites to marketing stuff to email addresses to the trucks and the wraps and the stickers and the licenses and the conference rooms and the computers and like, you know, um, 
which was a hard pill to swallow because cash flow looked like a Nike check mark. Yeah. You know, but yeah. in the first six months, it was straight down. Yeah. And uh, we were just eating through it. And, um, you know, it's funny. I think that, um, I think I think I texted you this the other day when people talk about like failure, you know, and I told you that I've met a lot of uh, people that aren't very smart that are extremely wealthy. Yeah, right. Um, I just like, you know, looking back at that and like going through it, I just never really thought about failure. It was just kind of like, you know, this is what's got to get done. If we want to get to where we want to go, then I have to buy the tools. Right. I have to buy the computers, you know. And so like one of the things that like when I first set out to do it, you know, everybody wants to see a pro forma. Everybody wants to see a budget. Well, pro formas, when you're dealing with real estate or like you see myself storage pro formas, like those are actually accurate, right? But when you're dealing with construction or some sort of, you know, product like this, like your pro forma is just a ginormous guess, like, right. it, you know, on the revenue side, right? On the cost side, you can, you can kind of, you know, nail down your costs, but your costs are also going to follow your revenue, right? So what I mean by that is if, if you start doing a lot of revenue, then you saw all that material out in that shop. Well, that's all material for a job. Well, that material wouldn't be there if we didn't have the revenue. So right. the cost kind of follows the revenue. But whenever you're starting the company, you have one-time hard cost and then you have a rolling cost. And so I had set it up and looked at, you know, your one-time hard cost are all your tools, um, all your computers, your your office equipment, all that, right? That's a one-time expense. And then your rolling costs can be your insurance, your fuel, your payroll, all that stuff. And so I kind of looked at that and I said, all right, you know, I want I want to have uh, six months, four to six months in the bank. Um, and then ultimately we're going to go hunt and we're going to get this work. Um, and, that, and that's kind of where I found the book Traction. You know, one of my mentors had turned me on to that book. Um, I had read it. And, and really the biggest thing I got from Traction was, was focusing – on you and your core business and how you want to grow it, right? Don't focus on all the noise. And there was a ton of noise, right? I mean, it was a big deal that they had let me go and that I had started my own company and all the contractors were up in hoopla about, you know, are you capable? That was probably the biggest question that I had starting a business was, do you have the, the quality of insurance? And then are you capable of doing this, right? And I remember there were certain contractors, man, that, that would hold our payment just for the sake of doing it, like for absolutely no reason, you know. Um, and, and it was frustrating, uh, but it was a, a lessons learned. Um, and, and so I never wanted to play the small game. I knew that I wanted to grow and grow quickly, and, and so that's really what we did. Um, you know, we, we scaled. Uh, luckily, we had some good contractors on the team that would, um, you know, believed in us, gave, gave us work. Um, one of my biggest clients is Walmart. Um, we do a lot of work for those guys. We do a lot of work for Texas A&M, A&M Systems Group, Prairie View, Corpus, you know, all these different places. Um, but at the end of the day, it kind of goes back to cash flow. Um, you know, those guys are 30, 60, 90 days out from paying. And, right. and so that's a tough, that's a tough pill to swallow. Um, but, you know, that's why I love this industry is that it's, it's regulated uh, it's mandated by law. They have to have these fire protection systems inspected, tested, maintained. Um, and so, you know, you can start to build that reoccurring revenue up. And then that's what, you know, ultimately that's what drives high multiples when we talk about selling or EBITDA. And so my goal was kind of built to sell, you know, and there's a book called Built to Sell. If anybody hasn't read that, I would recommend it. Um, you know, it, it's about systemizing the process. It's about using technology. Um, it's about making everything digital, not you know, you'll walk into some places and you see all this paper and everything, right? And, and it's it's not that paper's a bad thing. It's just that it's not organized. It's not easily accessible, right? 
Um, and so I had been building the company, built it to scale, built it to sell. Um, and it was doing well, you know, cash flow was great. Um, obviously COVID came down the pipe. That didn't really hurt us. We grew during COVID. I remember at the beginning, it was a really weird deal. Um, but ultimately like what, what helped us was really Walmart started closing down early and allowing us to get in there early. And so we would, um, we were able to do more work. Yeah. And then, you know, everybody knows that Walmart killed it during COVID. And so they've really ramped up and changed their business model. And I can talk about Walmart versus Amazon for a long time. Um, obviously, I'm bullish on Walmart. <laughs> but I think geographically, there's no, uh, there's no company on earth that can compete with them because they said that 90% of the population in America lives within 10 miles of Walmart. Right. That's just staggering to have that geographical location, that good. Uh, right. of positions um, if they can't beat Amazon then shame on them right because you know Sam Walton and those guys put them in the best position on earth from a distributorship location you know from these people being able to distribute from the, those areas right you know hiring in Uber and Lyft drivers to drop it off everything's about convenience now how do we get drones you know not to get in the FAA flight patterns you know that's something they teach us in pilot school um, you know the future of what these drones are going to do and everything and so but to get back to it, um, you know, we, we did well during COVID. Um, and then, yeah, ultimately wasn't looking to sell it. Um, but I'm always open to networking, kind of like how you and I met, right? I, I'm always looking to, to grow the network. And so um, I guess that's kind of how I, I get into the process of selling this thing. Um, you haven't asked me any questions yet. You've just been letting me ramble. You're rolling. I mean, it's all good. Yeah. It's all good. I haven't had a question pop up. No. So I got a call one day from a guy out of Dallas, and I, I won't use anybody's name here, but this dude called me. He played the Aggie card on me. He was like, hey, man, I'm a fellow Ag. Uh, I bought a fire protection company up here in Dallas, um, and my RMEG left. So an RMEG is a, um, a specific license that you have to have in the state of Texas um, to run a fire sprinkler company, specifically a fire sprinkler company. And it's very hard to obtain. And I, I love when people tell me, like, I'll let me go get my RMEG. Because, like, it, it honestly it irritates me. And I don't get irritated much. But it, it irritates me because it, like, it downplays the hard work that the guys that have it put in, right? right. So, for instance, in this office, there's I have 71 employees, right? There's two guys here with an RMEG, and it's the top two. It's right. me and Troy. Right. Right. And Troy knows fire protection hands down better than I do. Uh, because he's a designer, he's an engineer. Um, but ultimately, it's like there's a lot of people in this industry that claim, like, oh, I'm just going to go take it. Like, I just haven't had time to take the test yet. Like, I'll go, you know, whatever. No, you won't. Like, A, you're not going to breeze through it. And B, you're not going to, you know what I mean? I just get I get fired up over that subject. But Because uh, I know the hard work that I put in. I read NFPA 13, which I'll show you a copy of it. It's like that thick. You know, it's probably three or four inches. I read every single word twice. You know what I mean? And yeah. that was part yeah. of my studying for it. You know, it's, it's a hard exam. but it's probably what it takes. Nonetheless, this dude called. I need an RMEG. And, you know, my answer is, of course, no. Uh, you can't borrow my license. There's way too much liability, way too much risk. But nonetheless, I'll come talk to you. Right. Try and get you out of this bind. So I go up to Dallas, and I sit down with the guy and talk to him. And uh, Nice guy. I think that um, at the end of the day, probably one of the, the private equity I don't really know much about him. Uh, never really talked to him after that meeting, uh, probably because I didn't give him 
advice that uh, that he wanted. But um, you know, ultimately, what what he ended up doing was he was trying to figure out like how how did you get your company? How did you build your company? You know, because he had a bunch of money and I didn't. And um, so he accused me of having this investor, and he's like, "There's this guy that's an Aggie that loves to invest in." in fire protection and yada yada and I'm like no and he's like yeah he's worth a ton of money and uh, I'm like no that's not my investor um, you know ultimately my investor is just a dear uh, a beer drinking buddy from the deer lease um, and so but yours sounds cool too yeah and so <laughs> I was like let me go find and he never would give me his name you know it's one of those instances right. where he accuses me of this thing and I'm like no it sounds like a good time but no it's not him and, um, you know, because everybody signs non-disclosure agreements. You know, we can't, we can't discuss anybody's real name. And so I don't know how right. the dichotomy of how he, if he had actually had an NDA or not. But nonetheless, I go find this dude, right? So I'm going to find this guy. He loves fire protection and everything. So I want to meet him and talk to him. And so I end up finding him on the Internet. Um, and that's how I found Summit. And, you know, and it ultimately led me to this guy. So you found... The guy that he was talking about. I found the guy he was talking about. Gotcha. Yeah, okay. yeah. Who was on the board of Summit. Gotcha. Right. Okay. Um, and so I end up buying the, the LinkedIn premium version for $69 and DM this dude. It was like, hey, I uh, heard you like fire. And, you know, have no real um, agenda here, right? So DM'd him. And I don't remember exactly what I said. I'm sure I can look it up. But um, probably just, hey, I got a fire protection company. Heard you really like it. You're an Aggie. Um, you know, would like to have a conversation. And so we hop on the phone probably two or three days later. And, uh, and have a great conversation, not really about fire protection, but really more about um, men, right? And that's one thing that really hits home with me. I know you and I have talked about it is, is the guys that work for you and how, you know, whether they look up to you or not, they entrust their livelihood of their families and you to provide for them, right? And, and I've talked about how you have that fiduciary responsibility to make sure that you provide for them and you have the best interest of the business at heart, right? right? And I've made plenty of decisions at this business that other people criticized, not because of the decision, but in my mind, because of the possibility of the outcome of the decision. And we can get into what that means. But So ultimately, him and I had a great conversation. He shares the same love that I do for the service-based businesses, for the reoccurring revenue, um, and for the guys and the hard work that they put in uh, to provide for us and, and ultimately them and their families. So we really hit it off. Um, he's like, hey, I'm, you know, his parents live here in town. So he's like, hey, I'm coming to town. Why don't we sit down and talk? And I'm like, yeah, sure, come on. And so this dude shows up an hour early to my house. Oh, yeah. You know I'm how early I am, yep. right? I'm a, I'm a punctual guy. I'm on time all the time. I'm early. I'm prepared. I mean, you see my notes. Like, I don't. I, I don't mind winging stuff, and I'm decent at it, but I don't like to do it. Right. This dude showed up an hour early at my house. Mind you, I mean, he's worth probably nine figures. Yeah. You know what I mean? He's, it's up there. Well, and Lauren knows. You've met Lauren. Lauren yes. knows he's coming, right? So Lauren's nervous. He shows up, talks to her for like an hour. She's freaking out. <laughs> and uh, she texts me, and so I come rushing home, like, oh, God, he's early. And uh, so we sit out on the back porch and talk about everything under the sun from – you know, how to grow the business. And then he gives me a couple of recommendations like uh, Rockefeller Habits and some of these books that I've read and, um, you know, really hit off a pretty good friendship. And, uh, and he's like, well, why don't we get Summit to come look at you guys? And I was like, yeah, that's fine. And uh, that's really where I got introduced to, uh, to Jeff Everard, our CEO. So Phil introduces me to Jeff. Jeff, I go over to San Antonio 
um, and meet with Jeff and, and kind of have some really good conversations. And, but ultimately at that point, um, I hadn't built a big enough business. You know, we were big and we were growing, but we were new and fresh. And so, you know, we kind of said, hey, you know, nice to meet all you guys. Um, let's just see how things play out, right? And that's when COVID hit. And then that's where, um, you know, everything kind of went into some turmoil. But I always stayed in touch with, um, you know, that investor, that guy that was on the board. Mm-hmm. And, and the reason why is because, and I told him, my intentions are is for you to be a mentor to me. Um, I'm going to ask you questions. I want your honest feedback and transparency. And uh, I really enjoyed talking with him and, and getting his uh, his perspective on things. So to mess with him, about once a quarter, I would send him a financial statement and just say, you know, here's where we're at. You know, it was kind of flexing. It, it's what it was. Um, because, you know, we I had a great business, a hell of a business. And um, it was doing really well, you know, $8, $10 million in revenue. It was booming. And um, and, and double-digit EBITDA numbers. And, and so finally he, he replied back, you know, and uh, was like, hey, this is something we ought to sit down and look at. And so um, Jeff and them got involved, um, you know, the investor's pretty hands-off. He's on the board of, of CI Capital, which was the private equity company behind Summit at the time. Right. Um, you know, but ultimately, um, you know, it came down to it, and that's, that's kind of when we get into to the stresses of selling a business. You know, not many people go through that. Um, and it was all on me, you know. And, and so I remember going through this thing, and my investor and, and all the other guys and everybody was kind of like, you know, they were going to follow my lead. And so... As we got into this thing, we started going through like networking capital adjustments, all these accounting audits, all these work in process reports, all the the general. It's called GAP. It's generally accounting accept or generally accepted accounting practices, and uh, it was an absolute thrashing. Is what it was. I was getting from every angle, and at the same time, I've got to do like I said a fiduciary duty to my investors and, and my guys. And then as well as keep running the business, right? Because the last thing you want to do is, you know, you read about this all the time where people come in and waste your time for, you know, three, six months. And then you ultimately, all you have on the backside of this thing is a poor performing business because you've been, you Right, know, you've been f- so focused on that. You've been distracted, yep. right? You took your eye off the ball. Um, and at the same time, I couldn't talk to anybody about it because it wasn't real. You know, what if what if I backed out? Right. So I go talk to all these people and say, hey, I'm going to do this. And then all of a sudden, it's like, no, I don't do that. And I think that a lot of people, and I've had this happen to me, where a lot of my employees were upset. And I think that um, it's perspective, right? Perspective is, is a huge part of life. Um, and it's very hard to put yourself in someone else's shoes that you don't understand. And so whenever I looked at it, you know, from a, a whole side of things, it's like, um, I knew that I had grown the business to a point where I had two options. Uh, I could hold it forever, right, and stay right here where I'm at and do this amount of revenue. And because I had built the other company up to the same point, and I was like, this is this is as big as it's going to get. Now I could fight tooth and nail and get another ten or twenty percent of market share, um, but you know that's not that big, right? Another ten or twenty percent is not. But to take it to a hundred million, right? What that was going to require was starting to expand into other markets, Houston, Austin, other places, um, you know, which is not, that's an endeavor, right? That's one route. But I knew that if I could get, 
uh, a little bit of money in my pocket, I could do other things. Right? Right. And so whenever Summit came to the, to the table, what I really liked about them was that they not only provided us some diversity, we were also the dominant sprinkler company in Texas for them. So these other offices, they've got uh, Lufkin, they've got Houston, Dallas, Amarillo, um, and now I guess Austin and San Antonio. All those other offices are really good at fire alarm extinguishers, uh, kitchen hoods, um, pre-engineered systems, but none of them are dominant sprinkler. Right. So I saw the opportunity for my guys. I saw the diversification. Um, you know, because one of the things I tell, and nobody really like nobody gets this, but I tell them this all the time. If I were to get hit by a train back whenever we owned better, the bank would have came calling in a matter of weeks. Why is that? Because I'm gone. You know what I mean? It's like at the end of the day. and I know because, you know, because the jockey's, the jockey's, the jockey's gone. gone. Right, right. yeah. Whenever, whenever I look at investing, and I know you and I had this conversation, it's the jockey and the horse. Right, the bank knows we got a really good horse. Yeah, the horse is doing good. It's it's chumming along, but the jockey's the one leading the business. Right, I'm the one that's the. I show up here every day and I set the tone. Right, and I and I really believe in that. And the leader sets the tone. Um, and so to, to get back to it, you know, we go through this sale process. Um, ultimately, it went smooth. You know, I, I can't say anything bad about Summit. They've been great to us. They've been great to work with. Um, they you know, tuck us under the wheel, and I think. I think the biggest thing is, is they they acquire at such a rapid pace. I mean, they're on like one to two a week, or one, yeah, a week, a week, a week. Good lord! Right, they just closed on FLSA. They got a bunch of money rolling around. <sighs> a lot. They closed on FLSA, and that's public information, so I'm not disclosing anything I shouldn't disclose. But um, you know, FLSA was one of the largest in the country. They had um, like 20 offices or something, you know, across the country, and um, so I guess to, to back up a little bit, uh, CI Capital was the, the, the private equity firm behind it. And, and to describe a private equity firm, essentially what that is, is it's a group of guys, right? And this is a very uh, lame down version of what private equity is. Right. But let's say it's a group of five or 10 dudes that all get together and say, all right, look, we got a bunch of money and we're gonna throw $10 million in the bank. We also have a ton of expertise. We're very good at this. We have a lot of connections and we're gonna go, we're gonna take a majority interest, and this is just one example, a majority interest in said company, and then we're gonna lever up and we're gonna go uh, growth by acquisition. And this is just one route of private equity. Right. So they're gonna, okay, these 10 dudes, we're all gonna sit on the board, we're gonna put in our own money, and then we're gonna go to the bank and say, we want you know, 80, 20, 60, 40% leverage, and we're gonna grow by acquisition, right? Well, when you grow by acquisition, one of the things is, is this multiple, right? When you're looking at what is a company valued at, that's your price to earnings ratio. So you've got a, an EBITDA or an adjusted EBITDA, and then you've got a multiple on that on that EBITDA. Right. Right. Well, as you begin to grow and diversify, it's like a you know, if today, if the the organization in Saratoga or Sarasota, Florida, you know, has a leak go on, right? I don't know anything about it, right? Because each one of these offices is his own individual business unit, right? So that diversification of that portfolio becomes more and more diverse. Therefore, that multiple goes up and up and up, right? Well, whenever you're buying just a local branch, right, you're not going to pay that huge multiple, that right. 18 or 20x. You're going to pay 5 to 8, you know, whatever. Let's right. call it 10x. Um, so the moment that you acquire that EBITDA and it comes rolling in, it goes from worth 4x to 18x. 18x, yeah. Right? And so yeah. there it becomes exponential in growth. Mm -hmm. And so that's where... The bank says, yep, let's go buy. And so they start acquiring. And, and really, the, the pain points are in the execution of getting all the new software rolled out, keeping all the employees happy, 
how do we make everybody feel safe and secure? Like I'll never forget one of the guys walked in and said, hey, my gas card doesn't work anymore. Um, is Summit going down? And I'm like, dude, it's like a billion dollar corporation. No, you're, you're, 60, <laughs> you're $62 in gas and you're going to put a dent in it. But in their mind, that was how that worked. And right. so it's like, okay, right. so how do I how do I shape their minds to understand that, you know, your paycheck is so much more secure now than it was whenever I owned it. Right. Right. I mean, way more secure. Because I remember cash flow, you know, looking at the bank and, and my accounting lady would come in and be like, Robert, I don't know if we're going to make payroll yeah. on Friday. And it's like, crap. You know, everybody start making collection calls right now, you yeah. know. And, and so I remember, uh, I know I'm going way back, but I, I drove to San Antonio one time and had one of my better contractors uh, front pay a $100,000 invoice. And he wrote the check. And I drove all the way to San Antonio, got that check, and came back and cashed it. And, um, yeah. And he made payroll. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We always made payroll. My yeah, guys never got do. Every, everybody. Everybody always got paid. Um, but, yeah, so to, to go into the Summit thing, you know, we joined that team. Um, and it's been great. We've grown a lot uh, since then. Um, it, it allows us to provide the, the best benefits, you know, for the guys. So the 401K, the medical insurance, um, all that good stuff. Uh, and then it also provides us a, a ton more security as well as diversification of customer base. Um, we're able to go help out the Houston office, the Dallas office. And, and it also allows for a lot more opportunity for my employees. Right. Um, you know, my guys are able to do that. Go ahead. I do have one question for you. So you were talking about uh, EBITDA and leverage yeah. and multiples and all that stuff. And so for somebody who, um, you know, they followed you all, all the way to here, what what does EBITDA mean? What do you mean by leverage? And yeah. uh, what do you mean by EBITDA times the multiple? Right. So EBITDA is, is earnings before interest tax depreciation amortization. Uh, essentially, you know, when you look at adjusted EBITDA or, you know, you can go to the the, the worst thing on earth, which is SDE, which is seller's discretionary earnings. Uh, I say it's the worst thing on earth. It, it's the problem is with small businesses, and, and I don't want to say the problem is, but the issue is is that a lot of people don't want to pay taxes, and I'm right there with them. You know, I I hate paying taxes just as much as the next guy. But uh, adjusted EBITDA and seller's discretionary earnings. Whenever you're running a small business, you can run, you know, the boat through the, the profit loss statement. You can run the personal truck through it. We can run the wife's truck through it. We can run, you know, the kids' volleyball tournaments and, you know, whatever you right. want, right? So all that stuff becomes addbacks to this profit loss statement. And it also, you know, when you talk about above the line and below the line, you know, you're looking at your cost of goods sold and you're looking at your overhead expenses. There's so many different ways, and that's why it goes back to GAAP, generally accepted accounting practices, right? Generally accepted, you know, because... There's, there's a hundred different ways to skin this cat and look at things. And at the end of the day, when a company's coming in to, to value you, right, you have to come to an agreement on the adjusted EBITDA. Right. You'll never agree. Right? Somebody's going to win, somebody's going to lose. Right. And that's where this, this networking capital adjustment comes into play. Um, you know, that's looking at your work in process, your, your WIP reporting, and you're kind of projecting out how you're going to do in the future versus how you've done in the past. Do you run, you know, on a big business like this, you have to run accrual-based accounting versus cash accounting. On accrual-based accounting, you know, you're, you're projecting gross margins on projects that you, so you're starting to recognize revenue, like I said, based off the cost of it, and you're assuming this gross margin. And I know we're getting into a bunch of complicated stuff, and it's not that complicated, um, but it's all information that you need to know. And, and it goes back to, if you're trying to sell a business, you need to get yourself around guys that know what the hell they're doing. Right. Um, 
because <laughs> if you don't, you're going to get taken advantage of. Right. And so, you know, I had a, a really good accountant. I had a really good attorney. Um, I think they charged way too much money uh, for what they did. But, you know, it's funny. I remember talking to my attorney at the end of it and, uh, and telling her, I'm very transparent with people. Mm-hmm. And so if I don't like something, I'm going to tell you. And, right. Uh, that doesn't always work well for me in, in my marriage. Because um, no. I, I just bring it up. You know, we're going to throw it out here on the table. We're talking about it. And uh, I'm not going to be pass aggressive. I'm not going to, you know, not text you back and, right. and be all butthurt. Um, and so I remember telling her that and just being like, look, I think for the amount of money you've charged, I don't understand where that value is created. And she told me, and I'll never forget this, she said, you'll never know my value until something goes wrong. And then you'll see where I came in and all the language, because that was the thing, right? Accountants and attorneys, all they do, they're doom and gloom people. Right. This can go wrong. This can go wrong. This is going to go bad. The life, you know, the world's going to end. And this is how, you know. And so it's tough because, you know, at the end of the day, it's like, you know, we're trying to get a deal done. And these guys, all they're trying to do is break it down. And at the end of the day, too, they get paid by the hour. And so it's like it's frustrating when you know that they're racking up $249 an hour and it's just... But at the end, you know, there's a whole lot of money at stake in, right. in, in people's lives and their investors, and there's a there's a ton of tension, and you know, it's just it was just very stressful uh, time. Um, but ultimately, we got it across the finish line, and so you asked about EBITDA, and and so I answered that, and then you asked about the multiple. So the multiple is going to come down from really it's it's an industry standard, right? What what does the industry pay, and and so whenever you're looking at um, you know, in fire protection, for instance, they're gonna they're gonna break down your revenue streams, and they're gonna say what is reoccurring, what is recurring, right? There's a difference between reoccurring and recurring, and then what is construction, right? right. What is break fix, and, and where are your different revenue streams coming from? What is the diversification of your customer base? So, for instance, um, you know, we do a lot of work at Texas A&M. Well, what's the the likelihood Texas A&M goes out of business? It, it probably zero. Right. Right. If right, Texas A&M right. goes out of business, then we have a problem. Right. Right. Walmart. They're not going up. You know what I mean? But if you're really hedged on, you know, the manufacturer of gasoline, right? If you're, you know, oh, we do a ton of work at Shell. Well, that may not be the best one to, to go after, right? Your, your customer diversification isn't very diverse, right? But if you've got 10,000 customers, then we know if you lose five of them, you're not going to take a huge hit. Right. Right. Uh, A&M's risk, right? If you make the wrong guy mad or whatever... And something happens and you get blacklisted, like that's a big risk. Same thing with Walmart. And just cut you off. Right. And so that was another thing that that did well for us whenever we joined Summit was it diversified our customer portfolio and and allowed us to get different revenue streams in there. Um, And all those things drive that multiple up, right? Um, That answer your question? Mm Mm-hmm. All right. Yep. Yep. And then then I guess go from how they value you. They value EBITDA times the multiple, and that's essentially what – what they what they're going to pay for you correct and then you're going to have a holdback period um you're going to have all kinds of different structures in there um you know i wasn't big on clawbacks because you know like there's there's different earnout structures you can do so for instance i know um i didn't do an earnout um i didn't do a clawback we, everybody has to do a holdback um but essentially what what an earnout would be is like okay look you know you're going to value your business at at a hundred dollars you know and but we valued at 75 so we're going to take we're going to say all right we're going to put down 75 and then that other 25 percent we're going to do as an earnout period based on the future performance because you're claiming that you're going to continue to do x performance right well the problem with earnouts is it goes back to gap generally 
accept in accounting practices. How did you account for this versus how am I going to account for this? Right. And then the, the bigger problem that I have with earnouts is if you look at it from a, a CapEx standpoint, right, my interest is I want to earn as much money as possible on EBITDA, right? So I may make business decisions that aren't the best for the long-term business because I want the short-term outcome to be higher. So for instance, I'm going to fire half of my operations guys, right? That way I you know, lose $300,000 in salaries. So therefore at the end of the year, you know what I'm saying? You follow me, mm-hmm. right? And so it's like, that's why I was opposed to earnouts is I think that they can, they can misconstrue that. Now they're, they can be relative if you got to get the deal done. Right. Because sometimes, you know, cause it's not just mine and your opinion, right? There's going to be bank's opinion. There's going to be board approval opinions. Everybody's going to throw their opinion in there, yeah. right? And so you think it's worth $125. I think it's worth 100 and Everybody else thinks it's worth 70 Right. Right. And so at the end of the day, we've got to get these deals done, and we've got to move the needle. And so, um, man, I'll tell you that um, business acquisition is one of the coolest things that I've I've ever been through and done and seen. And, and I get to – this kind of leads us into the next segue. I, I get to see it more and more now. Um, I don't, I'm not really on the M&A front, but I get to go in and see – who did we buy? How did we buy them? What was the multiple? What was the leverage? Uh, understanding the the private equity side of things, and then doing the due diligence. You know, we have big accounting firms doing all the actual accounting due diligence. Mm-hmm. But I've gotten to meet with some guys and really just sit down, create that relationship, understand their concerns, um, and really give them the the good old fashioned sniff test. And you know, are these guys men of their words? Do they, you know, they hold up to what they want to do? Are they going to be around long term? Because our biggest thing is we don't want to, you want to buy a company and then the owner just bail on you, right? Because right. then right. you're just holding left in the bag, right? You're, you're left holding the bag, and uh, that's not going to do us any good. And so, you know, ultimately, um, I'm happy with the decision. Uh, I've been here a little over a year now. Um, BlackRock bought the company from CI Capital back in, I don't, I think it's September technically is what the, the date was. Um, and that's been interesting. Um, you know, it's obviously the largest asset manager in the world. I think it's like nine point something trillion. Um, you know, and then going through the whole COVID vaccine and all the stuff, you know, when you're dealing with a big corporation, um, it, it's just been interesting. You know, I can't say it's been good or bad. It's, it's been, uh, it's been fine. I'm not upset with it. Um, I'll tell you the, the reason I stayed cause I had a, an opportunity to leave Well, there's several reasons I stayed. Uh, one is my people, right? I feel like I owe it to my guys to to lead this organization, to provide the fiduciary responsibility to uphold, you know, everybody uh, here and to grow the organization. Uh, but the other one is is Jeff, is our CEO. Um, I have a ton of respect for that guy. Um, he works very hard. Every time I talk to him, he's always after it. You know, you can tell when you get on the phone with somebody and they're just they're upbeat. They're, they're going. They're passionate. They're going. They're rolling. And I've got a standing 30-minute call with him every month. And um, it's just funny. Every time we get on the phone, the guy's just going, going, going. He's like 62, 63. Um, But I I have the utmost respect for that guy. Um, And we've created a really good relationship. And and so I I really look forward to working for him and and really learning from him. Um, Because I think that he brings a ton of value to the table, a ton of value to this organization. and that goes that goes back to the the jockey again. Yeah, yeah, he is the jockey. Yeah, and that's that's who BlackRock bet on. They they bet on the horse. I think they look at the horse and, and they know what the horse is is about um, in terms of you know 
we're not Uber. We haven't lost you know four right. billion dollars a quarter. <laughs> we actually make money. Um, you know, it's a stab at Uber, but uh, you know, and, and so it kind of goes into another segue. But it's like kind of the the forecast and what you look at in, in an organization like this. Um, they're never going to draw back the the guidelines of fire protection. You know, they can't. And so you know, buildings have to be evacuated. They have to have fire sprinklers in them. They have to have fire pumps. All that stuff is gonna get worn down. It's gonna get worked on. It's a, um, it's a, it's a great business. It's a great business model. It has very high barriers to entry. I was telling you about the engineering licenses. Yep. Um, uh, you know, it, uh, it needs large upfront capital. You need very beefy insurance policies. You know, I remember when I went to get insurance, everybody laughed at me. They're like, no, no, no. And then I talked to some of them, and we'd sit down and like, they're you know, all they want to talk about is buildings burning down. And it's like that's not even what my biggest fear is. My biggest fear is flooding a building, not burning. Right. Because if it burns, there's never been a building that's fully sprinkled kill a person. Not never. Really? No. No, I mean, the, the fire protection does its job. Right. But my biggest fear is flood a building. I've been involved in three lawsuits since I've been in my wonderful career. I'm 30. Uh, one was flood a building. One was um, injury on a job site. The other was employment related. Um, and so, you know, I can tell you that the the flooding the building is a massive problem. I mean, it it's just I don't want to get into the details of what happened, but it was, um, yeah, it's a big, a I big bet. deal. Yeah, I and bet. it taught me a lot about terms and conditions, limitations of liability, waivers of subrogation. We can get into contract languages and and how all that stuff plays out and uh, tort law and and all of that. And it was a great learning experience. Um, but nonetheless, yeah, insurance is a, is a whole different world, a different beast for us. Um, so yeah, what else? What else you got on this subject? Um, I'm not sure. I mean, uh, what is what is the um, I guess end goal for um, BlackRock to take Summit? Yeah. Um, I mean, what what is what does their future look like? You know, I think that they're going to continue to acquire. I think they're going to diversify across the country with our footprint. Um, you know, I know we've got a lot of strategic growth initiatives inside of Summit to really shore up the foundation. You know, one of the things that, that I enjoy is they call it the wheel expansion, but it's taking, and I know I've got it behind me here, is, is our revenue breakdown um, from sprinklers to alarms to extinguishers to kitchen hoods and really making every one of these offices full scope. Right, and being able to be diversified in all these aspects. So, for instance, I call it cannibalizing your own customer base. People don't like the word cannibalizing for some weird reason. Um, but essentially all it is is taking over those existing customers you have and, and really you know, taking them from just fire sprinkler customers to fire alarm, fire extinguisher. Because you know, right. they all have the same stuff. Right. You know, if you have a fire sprinkler system, you have a fire alarm system. Right. If you have a fire alarm system, you have a fire extinguisher somewhere. Yep. You know what I mean? And yep. So it's like, how do we get all that in that one full mm-hmm. scope? Um, but essentially what they're going to do is they're going to continue to acquire. They're going to continue to shore us up um, from a office standpoint so that we can take on more national accounts. So, you know, for instance, like Buffalo Wild Wings or Walmart, right? right. They're going to have a national account where they're going to work all over the country at these stores. And so those are great for us because we don't have to sell that work, right? So there is no customer acquisition cost associated. It's just, hey, here's this work. Go do it. Right. Those are great customers to have. Um, and so... You know, ultimately, I don't know what the exit plan is. I think my goal, I I have two thoughts. I think going public would be great. I think we're big enough to go public. Um, but I think that the other side of it is staying private equity is not bad. 
um, you know, I just think that as you continue to get larger, the the, the public exit is ultimately, you know, going to get there one day. Um, I, I want to go public, you know, selfishly for my own men and myself, you know, because these guys can get a discounted share price and invest back in the company. Right. That gives them more to fight for. That gives them more ownership. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they can see that stock price and they can see, you know, they've got something tangible to look at right. um, every day. So I would hope for that, um, but I don't know. You know, right. I think that it just depends on the, the outlook of the economy. Kind of goes into the what's the future plans for investing, you know, um, what are these stocks going to continue to do? Are you going to SPAC? Are you going to IPO traditionally? Right. There's a huge, um, there's a huge accounting lag on public companies, you know, because of the amount of infrastructure it takes from a software standpoint, and then the manpower that it takes to keep up with all the reporting to go traditional IPO. Um, but ultimately, you know, if BlackRock IPOs something, it's probably going to do okay. Right. Yeah. yeah. Right. yeah <laughs> I mean, you know, yeah, yeah. not BlackRock doesn't get involved in something that they don't want to do well. So, Correct. Um, yeah, you know, that's the two routes I see, which are kind of the only two routes on earth is stay private equity or go IPO. Right. Um, I have yeah. a, another question on that one. Yeah. So, like, <clears throat> you were talking about how, like, you, you hope they go public because of, you, you know, your people, your men. Yeah. Um, and I was listening to a podcast by Ed Milet, uh, and I don't know who the guest was. It was it was it was a woman, uh, and she had taken one of her companies public. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know how old she was. I don't even know what the company was. But she said the biggest difference um, between like what she was doing, what other what other people were doing in the same industry, and weren't going public, were she was giving her uh, employees. Um, a stake in the company, right. uh, no matter how small it is, um, they had skin in the game, right. and so they can go. They're you know they're 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 fighting for themselves at that point, right? Yeah. Not just for the man up top, right? Um, you know th- they have skin in the game, and you know their the the company's success is their success as well, right? And so I think that's that's a good that's a good point that you made is is uh, and people are like, oh, I don't want to give up, you know, I don't want to give up this, I don't give up that, and that's you know that's awesome, but. Um, you know, if you can give people even a little bit of skin in the game, it's like, okay, let's roll. And I think on on my side of the real estate, um, there's two brokerages now that um, that give people stock in their in the company, um, and it's EXP and Real. And um, and I'm with EXP, and uh, I know a couple people with Real, and it's the same it's the same thing. But like, you know, traditionally, um, real estate brokerages, you know, they take 20%, 30% of the of the commission, and they just eat it, right? right. They get it all. Um, but now they're they're making these these models to where you know you you pay that into it, and then once you hit a certain number, they'll pay you that back in stock, and then you can go see it on the Nasdaq or whatever it is, and it's just pretty cool because you know yeah. you're like hey like they're fighting for me, so I'll fight for them type deal. Yeah, I know like an ESOP plan, uh, employee stock ownership plan is kind of the most popular way of doing it for privately held companies. Um, you know, I think it's a it's a problem that we're seeing right now. Like they call it the Great Resignation. I don't know if you've seen the the numbers on that, but yeah, like in November, like four point four million people quit their jobs. And it's not that those four point four million people went to get unemployment; they quit their jobs to go to other jobs. And it's kind of that. And this is a weird thing when you get into like millennial. Are you a millennial? No, you're like a Gen Gen X or something. Y or Z. I don't know. I think X is older than me. Oh really? Yeah, I think you're like. I don't know. Maybe it's maybe it's Gen Z or something. I don't know. Yeah, I know. Um, but it's like when you get into that mindset of like, aren't you a millennial? I'm a millennial. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Proud, proud of it. <laughs> um, you know, people are like, oh, I want to find purpose. I don't understand why I'm here, and like, they have all these these 
dire questions, right? And we have these these mental health problems that I think COVID just completely extrapolated. Um, but you know, it, it gives people purpose. And like like for instance, you'll see I'll, I'll give you some of our hats and stuff. Like you've seen our autism awareness hats and our breast cancer awareness hats and our breast cancer shirts and like it's giving people more of a purpose of working inside your community and it's like I tell people all the time I told I told some of this whenever they bought us that I am more proud of the team that I've built than the financial success that we have and then you know what BlackRock said to me hmm. they said that uh, your team is, is just a product of, of your financial success so they kind of reversed mm-hmm. what I said to them and they just turned it right back around me and said, well, you know, you wouldn't, if you claim that you've built a great team, right, then, then that's why you have financial success. But if you built a, a you know, crappy team, then you wouldn't have financial success. So it's kind of a, a dichotomy spin on it. Yep. And I remember when yep. he said that to me, I just kind of like, well, it kind of beat me up a little bit. I was like, well, that's not really fair. You know, but it, it's the truth. It's right. like, you know, it, it, the... The success or the the financial success is a byproduct of the team, but if you didn't have the team, then you wouldn't have the financial success. And so, right. Um, but you know that that's one of the things to go back, uh, you know, fifteen points here. Um, one of the big things they look for is not having all of the uh, financial success focused around one guy, because it's just like I said, the bank would come knocking if I go down. Well, right. they don't want to have everything hinged on me either, or they're right. going to you know, lock me in a bubble right. and not allow me to do anything. Right. You know what I mean? And so being able to diversify from a skill set standpoint, you know, having guys like Troy on the team that can, you know, that know this stuff better than I do. And it's like, okay, right. he can step into my role or whatever it is. Um, but I, I want to get back to our point. We were on a good roll. Oh, the millennials and, uh, and having <laughs> purpose behind your, your, you know, working just for a paycheck isn't going to work. You know what I mean? Like just bringing people in and grinding them down to the bone. Um, there's just too many. And I think COVID really exposed that. I think a lot of the guys that used to come to work, a lot of your, let's, let's call them introverts, right? And it's not really fair. I don't like the two categorizations. You're either extroverted or introverted, right? Because I'm, I'm an extroverted introvert. You know what I mean? It's like if I need to go make friends with you and talk to you, I will. If right. I don't, then I'll just chill over here and, yep. and be cool. Um, but, you know, a lot of those what COVID did to a lot of people was it took the guys that needed that security blanket and needed that, um, that W2 and, and all that. And it, it made them realize that life's going to be okay without it. And so whenever, you know, they went back to their jobs, they went back to the workforce and that old curmudgeon started yelling at them again. It's like, well, you know, yeah, screw this. I don't have to do this. Yeah. You know what I mean? I just <laughs> figured out that for the last three or four months that I didn't have to have this anymore. So you know what? I'm out. Yeah. And so it really took leadership to a different standpoint and it took work to a different standpoint. And I think a lot of people reevaluated their lives from a, a work-life balance. And that's where you see the work from home and the travel. And, and um, it's funny, and we'll get into it in a minute, but you know, all of the economic predictors that are out there got put into a cage and someone shook it up and then dumped it out on a table. And then it's like all the predictive measures that we used to use, the 10-year treasury bond, all the different stuff. It's like, look, it's all just kind of a, a shit show at the moment, right? And I can't predict anything because it's like, it's just, it's all over the board. And I'm not saying it's good, I'm not saying it's bad, I'm saying that it's it's interesting, mm-hmm. you know? But um, mm-hmm. it's a fun time to be alive, it's a very interesting time to be alive. Um, but I think that the workforce issue um, is something that we're gonna live with for a long time. I think that the gig economy, and I've met so many people now, you know, that um, they, and this isn't a bad thing to say or to think, is that all they want is for ends to meet every month. 
right? And so I, I met one. Every time I get an Uber, I talk to these guys. So like you. I was literally about to say that. Yeah, Same I, I want to know why you're here. What yep. are you doing? You know what I mean? And most of them are like, you know, what I've seen. I, I talked to one dude in Georgia for a long time. I, I travel a decent amount. And, um, man, he was like, you know, at, at the end of the day, as long as my, my ends meet every single month, I've got maximum flexibility. I can work when I want, where I want, how I want. And if I don't want you in my car, I'll delete this trip right now. You know what I mean? And he's like, I'm not worried about, and this dude was smart. I mean, him and I, we had a great conversation. It was like an hour long. Uh, he's like, I'm not worried about assets. I'm not worried about anything. At the end of the day, I'm, I'm going to live my life how I want to live it. And, and I'm happy with that. And uh, if that upsets you, then you can get out of my car. Right. You know what I mean? And it's like, <laughs> it's like touche, you know, right. good for you. Right. But that that separation between gig economy workers and like the blue collar workforce and your, your computer programmers and all that, it's going to continue to get separated further and further. And you see these tech guys getting paid out the wazoo, but the same things happen in, in the blue collar workforce. You know, I got guys making, you know, $30 an hour in this industry and, mm-hmm. and you got, you know, you see that more and more um, because the workforce is getting more and more scarce. Um, and, and I mean, I forget what the number was. I think I want to say that it's like 10,000 baby boomers a week are retiring or something like that, you know, because a lot. it's a ton because, you know, all that money, you know, pensions are no longer a big deal anymore like they used to be back in the day. And so now a lot of people have money in 401ks and stuff. And with the stock market doing what it did, a lot of those guys, my dad falls into that same, you know, spectrum. It's like. He's got an income, his 401k, you know, that they got, money. They just, got a bunch of seed money to sit on. Yeah, well, it just doubled over the past two or three years, you yeah. know, with with the way the economy is. And so it's like, you know, why not just leave? You know, I don't want to deal with all you millennials crying and beanbags and free cupcakes and, you know, I don't deal with this. And so, I mean, my dad's that guy. I'm out. Yeah, yeah. You, know, you yeah, take yeah. your sissy stuff somewhere else. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, it, it's an interesting time uh, to be a leader, to be a business runner. Um so I'll, I'll leave it at that. What else you got? Yeah, I think that uh, I think you're 100 percent right on the, on the gig economy stuff. Um, I remember I remember getting into a car in Vegas. I was with Chad, and um, we were we were talking to the guy. And this is every single Uber I've ever been in now, um, with except here, except here. Right? You know, there's some college kids that just yeah. you know side job it. But you know, I've been I've been to uh, Vegas. I've been to St. Louis, and um, it's kind of hearing that I'm kind of hearing echo. No, okay. Either way, um, I'm hearing. What the hell am I doing? <laughs> I've been to Vegas, St. Louis, and every single time, every Uber the way I was there, I would ask them, "So, hey, how long have you been doing this?" Yeah. And most of them are either it's usually either three, four years, or a few months. Yeah. But every single time, it's like, "This is what I'm doing." This is all I'm doing. Yeah. Because he's like, hey, I can make four, $4,000 a month and I can work four hours a day, six days a week, and not even think about it and make the money I was making sitting at a desk for 45 hours a week and yeah. hating it. Right. And not, not doing what I wanted to do. Um, and like t- to me, like let's say I can go make 60000 um, at a office job, but I got to yeah. be there 45 hours a week. Right. I got to go to lunch uh, in 30 minutes every day. Yep. I'm going to be at work at eight and leave at five. I would rather go make $50,000 a year and work four hours a day 
on my own time, making my own decisions, doing what I want to do because then I can go do anything else. Yeah. Right. Like yeah. I would gladly take the pay cut. And I think that's what you're saying that's is, it. Yeah. is like everybody saw that in COVID and it was like, and even me, like I, I got laid off from my job. Um, and I had a detailing business, detailing business at the time, laid off from my job, moved home. And I was like, man, um, I can't go back to that job. Right. Like I don't, I, I, I could, I was like 19 or 18. I don't know what, what it was, but, um, I was like, I do not want to do that. Yeah. Like forever. Right. Um, and, and now, you know, uh, ironically I work just, I mean, I was up till like 10 last night, just looking at property management software. So like, yeah, and now I'm working 24 seven, but like, it's, it's, it's different, right? It's different. It's different. Yeah. So I think you're hundred percent right on a quote the other day. And it was like, if you want to shop without looking at the price tag, then you need to work without looking at the clock. Yeah. And it's like, you know, and, and that's that's good and a bad statement, right? I think that, um, you know, a lot of people talk about how we wear, you know, this badge of like hard work on our sleeve and we, oh, I, I work 40 hours a day and, you know, and grind all the time. It's like, you know, but at the same time, it's like you just said, it's like, it's not really a work. Like I like looking at properties. I, I enjoy um, doing that kind of stuff and staying busy. And, you know, yesterday I went and assembled two beds with Lauren and, uh, no crying. I did not cry. Um, I don't know if she did or not. <laughs> she didn't while I was there. Um, you know, but it's like I enjoy staying busy, keeping moving. Um, I remember I met one of my neighbors for the first time like a month ago. And this dude's like, you know, I don't know. You've been in my house. He's yeah, like yeah. eight houses down. And his first comment was like, you're always on the go. And I was like, do you watch me? Like, you don't even know me. How do you? And he was like, I just like, I always like, you're either there, you're not there. And then you're there and then you're not like, you're just always doing something. I'm like, yeah, like, I don't, I don't know. I just don't sit at the house. Like, I can't. I just, I, well, that's, that's the same thing. I was going to say that. Like if I, I don't, I don't like it's everybody's like, Oh, you're gonna, you're working too much. And, and maybe I, I probably am, but like, I just can't sit there. Yeah. Like even last night at 10 PM and you know, Amber's over here watching her little TV show. <laughs> and I'm like, I don't know how you do that. Yeah. Cause I'm know. over here just, just, I'm playing with my trinkets and and thinking and it, I'm not it's a just TV show guy. Yeah, I can get into no. some documentaries. I really like some documentaries, and then I can get into like Meat Eater on Netflix. Like that was cool, but that was like he's like killing stuff and cooking it and like showing yeah, you how yeah. to cook it. Yeah, yeah, I get behind that. And then like, cause like my goal is to go on like a big Alaskan trip and like get dropped off in the middle of like the wilderness and then like for like a week. And, and just uh, make your way back. Yeah, well, like I, I got a whole plan, and it's a long story. But <laughs> it's yeah, we, we'll digress from that one. Oh, I, I want to tell you: uh, Have you ever developed a life purpose? I haven't asked you this yet. Like, what do you mean? So, like one of the one of the goals whenever I was in Colorado at Pikes Peak was they made you develop a life purpose, okay. and this can't be uh, a fifteen sentence story. This needs to be one sentence, and it's like, what is your purpose in life? Right, and and so what what makes you go? And it's very difficult, right? Because I think a lot of people, and I don't, I'm not this guy that gets off on like, give me your testimony, and like, you know, I was beaten as a child by my older sister who hated me, and like, you know, that's not the truth. I love my sisters, and uh, but you know, everybody's got like this weird story. But like, I feel like people feed off that. They're like, oh, well, you need to have like some struggle where like you were beat up, and then that changed your life, and like now you're this great human. And it's like, yeah, that's not me. Um, but, you know, I dare you to come stand next to me in my work ethic and, and stand in that same room. So mine that I put together was motivate and inspire others through action, right? Because I think a lot of people want to talk about it. A lot of people want to be this motivational beacon. But it's like, you know, I want people to be able to look at, at my story and what I've done 
and be motivated and be like, you know, I was just some random dude that was raised in a small town in East Texas. Yeah, sure, we struggled. Sure, we didn't have any money. But I never used that That's as a crutch. Right. It's like, and so what? You know, it's like, and, and I go to school and I got one sister that is – you know, a doctor and one sister that does research at the University of North Texas. And it's like, you know, here I am running businesses and stuff. And so, like, I just don't think that people should use that as a crutch. And so I, that's that's what my life purpose is, is to motivate and inspire others through action. Um, and so I was just curious if you had developed one or not. I mean, I've I've 100% been asked that question a lot. And I uh, I think the one that – the the thing that I always come back to, and it's, it's sort of broad, but uh, it's just like – I just want to be the best I can be every day. Yeah. Or, or I guess I, I word that wrong. I want to, well, that's the same thing. I, I strive to better myself every single day and, and striving for the, the best version of myself every day type thing. Yeah. Um, and that's really, yeah. I mean, whatever, whatever it takes to achieve that, I think is, is what I want. Yeah. Sounds like so, the, uh, the train stopping out there. Yeah. I was okay. like, I thought, I thought it was this. I was like, oh no. man. Dude, there's been two or three wrecks at that uh this crossing right here really? in the past like two months yeah yeah like with trains yeah oh really yeah they hit like two cars and an 18 wheeler i remember you talking about the 18 wheeler yeah, yeah. the 18 wheeler took it like a champ like i'm pretty <laughs> sure it drove off i don't know what happened but i was we were looking at it being like okay that's not bad like, <laughs> 18 wheeler took that thing on the nose i remember one time in brenham um it was like the biggest thing that happened in Burnham. It was like uh, a, a train derailed and like, oh, wow. compl- like it completely fell off the tracks and like fell down the hill. It was bad. It yeah. was, it was bad. But uh, yeah, that's, that's, I don't know why I said that, but it was just because of the train. Yeah. But, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So what next? You want to dive into the investing part? Yeah. I mean, I guess we can see where, where you're headed now with, you know, everything you, you've learned and, yeah. And uh, I guess where we'll see where you see yourself in the future. Yeah, so I think from an investing standpoint and where, like, my future, obviously I'm here at Summit. Um, I'm going to stick around for a while, I, you know, at least until the IPO or the next role, whatever that is, three, four, five years. Um, you know, so that's my full-time job, right? And then on the side, I kind of look at it like a, uh, like a chair. And one of my uh, mentors told me this the other day. It's like a three-pronged approach, right? You've got, for me, I've got real estate as one prong. I've got... Um, you know, the stock market asset classes there is the other prong. And then the third one is the private equity side. Um, you know, obviously I, I've invested back with BlackRock. Um, and so that would be one, you know, that's non-liquid. There is no liquidity there. Right. right? That's private equity. Right. Um, it's also, uh, I showed it to my bank the other day. I was like, hey, this is what I have in private equity. And he's like, cool. Uh, that means nothing to me. Great. Like, oh, well, that's helpful. Uh, yeah, so they could care less about it. Um, but no, you know, I, I think that's that's kind of the three prong approach I use from a from a stock standpoint. I have my personal brokerage account uh, where I absolutely lose all of my money because uh, I don't know what I'm doing and I yolo on random stocks and calls and puts and. Uh, I've kind of slowed down because I'm really bad. We're all the same. Yeah. We're we're all the same at the end of the day. It's literally like so. I should probably add you in the group chat because like we, it's me, Chad, uh, my my other partner Zach. And we just lose money. And uh, is, that, is that what the group chat is? <laughs> and, I'm in. And uh, my buddy Sam Lawhon, and he's actually a a fund manager for a retirement uh, firm okay. in Houston. They made like three billion dollars. Oh wow! And so like he's really really intelligent and like yeah. knows his stuff. 
He's the same as us and just loves to just trade and just see what happens. He's super He's super good about it. He doesn't lose a lot of money. Like, he actually makes money. Y'all all hate Tesla stock, then I think I can get along with y'all. But I, I don't really Tesla. care. All right, my, you, you get along with my uncle because my uncle absolutely despises Tesla. I mean, like, I love Tesla as a business unit, and I, I can go on for days about how – you know, the ownership of cars is going to go down, and that's going to be great. And then they're all going to be parked in Walmart parking lots, and we're not going to have to change tires or oil. But in terms of their price-to-earnings ratio and what their price, it is absolutely asinine. Oh, I know. I know. And anybody that holds shares in Tesla, I completely judge you. And you're saying because <laughs> I think that you've got problems. But, no, so I've got, you know, in terms of the investment side, you know, I've got a standard brokerage account. Uh, I manage everything with North, Northwestern Mutual. Uh, I've got life insurance policies there and whole life and all that. And then from a real estate standpoint, you know, we do Airbnbs, uh, we do storage uh, rentals, so self-storage, RV storage, boat storage, um, development. And then from the land side, you know, I've bought some land, split it up, sold it, um, you know, always looking for deals there. And then, like we said, the private equity side. Um, it's just, it's really about diversifying um, from a standpoint of your overall net worth and how much you want to stick into those buckets. Um, and then... You know, I, I don't try and time the markets. You know, everybody, oh, we're in a bubble. This is going to pop. That, you know, whatever. Uh, in 40 years, I'm not going to look back at this day and say that, you know, because I'm only 30. So yeah, because if, if you're at 250000 here and then right. it goes to 200000 tomorrow and right. then it's at 400000 in 10 years, what does it yeah. matter? I'm not big in crypto. I think that's probably one that, you know, I threw on here somewhere. Um, you know, and I've got, it's actually underneath this, uh, my short-term economic outlook. Um, okay. Can't, can't wait to tell you that story. Um, somebody's going to listen to this and get real fired up over what I think about crypto. I'll uh, I'll tell my uncle to to skip to that and because uh, he'll probably like he'll probably like this about the business and then he'll like the he's I mean he has a he's a his major is in economics at, from oh, tech, from tech. Well, that's so, awesome. Yeah, he could yeah. talk about it all day. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, I think one of the big things for me too was with the Airbnbs and stuff was getting something for Lauren that she could be passionate about. You know. Um, she ultimately like and, and my one of my sisters is uh, who is Lauren Lauren's my wife um, there you go alright so we've been together for I should probably know this uh, five or six years I don't know it's been a while um, we've been married for a little over a year now uh, got married during COVID that was great uh, but she was a respiratory therapist at a hospital and you know um, we need those people right and I'm, I'm all for it um, you know my dad was a firefighter for 30 years I've seen people that work in the public atmosphere. I've seen what it does to their morale, their outlook on life, their exposure to shitty situations. Yeah. Um, you know, as a real estate agent, you get to see the happiest day of someone's life. As a nurse or a doctor or a police officer, you get to see the worst day of their life. Right? Yep. Nobody gets excited when they get pulled over. Yep. Right? And so uh, I could see what that was doing to her overall nature and nurture and what it was doing. It's just doom and gloom. 24/7. It's tough. It's tough. And then... Like, it was even worse whenever you're dealing with, like, the administrators. And, and I can just, you know, as a whole, we should all empathize for that hospital system. They were standard operating procedures getting handed down daily. They were running out of PPE. Nobody knew. Was COVID uh, 80% mortality rate or an 8% or who had it, who didn't have mm -hmm. it? Everybody's pointing fingers. I remember when she first started coming home, we'd, like, hose her down in the front yard for fun. And it was funny, you know, it was kind of a joke, and uh, but it was true. And, uh, you know, it was just like stuff like that. And so I remember when she brought it home one day and she said, she had just got back from Fredericksburg and said, hey, um, you know, this would be something cool, yada, yada. And I was like, all right. 
and we started digging into it. So I started because y'all, she stayed at Airbnb there. Yeah, okay. correct. Yeah, yeah. And so I started looking at like the cash flow, the ROI. Um, and, and just it's better astronomical. Understand. Yeah, yeah. And then I know you and I have really kind of detailed down what we call the buy box, you know, and and got that from Bigger Pockets podcast. But really, um, honing in on uniqueness, you know, because we can go from what looks like you know scarcity in a market. So we've got a, a house over in Yantis on Lake Fork, and that is a scarcity market, right? There's not that many there, so therefore you can drive up the price and you can get a better ROI or cash on cash return. Um, but at the same time, it's also a very unique property. It's built up on stilts. It's really cool. It's a big house. It's got 2,000 square foot of decks. So that drives up the price as well. We are pet friendly. Um, and so that's kind of the, the way that I look at it, managing the business. It's like I look at the properties and analyze the data and say, okay, this is this is what I think is going to work. And then she takes it over and does all the – I still have to put beds together, unfortunately. <laughs> um, but she takes it over and does all the decorating and couches and pretty pictures on the walls and – handles all the customer stuff and talking to people and, um, you know, and all that good stuff. And so it's been working out well so far. It gives her something to do. It keeps her passionate. It's great cash flow. Yeah. Uh, it allows me to diversify the assets um, like I want to and, and make sure that I, I do the best I can to manage the money and, and you know, and prosper in that way. Um, so there was one that I heard the other day that I thought was very interesting, and it's called it was delayed cash flow. So I was I was listening to a podcast, and this guy was saying that he was buying properties in areas that he that he was actually going to lose money from a, a monthly standpoint of cash flow because he was going to fight appreciation over the long term. Because what do you mean he, fight appreciation. So like for instance, right now I've got a W two job with okay. an income, right? So I don't need the cash flow for right. the Airbnbs, okay. right? But if I'm going to say that, you know, I pick out this area, let's say it's in the Smokies or wherever, and you're going to buy in this area, but the cash flow is going to be low. Let's call it 100 bucks a month. Let's call it break even, right? From a long-term rental standpoint or an Airbnb standpoint. But in 20 years, I think that that $200,000 property is going to be worth a million, right? That's an $800,000 gain. You don't need the cash flow. And so what there, it was on bigger pockets. And what he was talking about was he has a portfolio of, say, 100 properties, right? So he's getting all this cash flow from the really good ones. But in, in 10 or 15 years, they may not appreciate as much. But these over here, their low cash flow, are going to really appreciate in that market. And so it was, just, it was an interesting way to look at something to say, because everybody's always cash flow, cash flow, cash flow. It's all about cash flow. But maybe it's not. Maybe it's about you know using this as a special purpose vehicle to, and I don't know if you've looked at that much of SPVs, but it's like you use this as a special purpose vehicle because you, you want this to not make money. You want this to be just a tax write-off, and you want to be able to use it to use depre- force depreciation on the cost segregation against all this cash flow you have over here. Mm-hmm. Um, it was an interesting perspective, and so I'm not saying that I can deploy that uh, in my uh, realm because I don't think I'm there yet, um, but it is something I'm going to keep on the radar it's just a different way to look at something, uh, right. analyze a property. Right. But yeah, I think right now for us, and I, think, I know you know this, is that our buy box is unique Airbnbs within the boundaries of Texas um, that we would want to visit ourselves one day. You know, whether it's on a lake, on a river, um, you know, really like that one down there in New Braunfels that we kind of passed on. But what did it, you said it had 40 showings in a matter of like two days? It was, uh, oh man, let me think about that one, yeah. Oh yeah, it was like it was like eighteen showings, the first day is on market, twenty two the next day, and then we're gonna stop offers the next day at noon. That's crazy. Yeah, I want to go back to the the Airbnb and kind of the the strategy because I think that it's it's 
interesting for people to hear if you break down the way Airbnbs, the way I look at it is uniqueness, um, scarcity, and then commodity, right? And, and I hate commoditizing yourself in a market of any sort of market. Um, you know, if you're going to do landscaping, right, it's going to be high volume, low margin work, yeah. right? And that's just, that's a recipe for pulling your hair out. Yep. And so if you commoditize yourself in an Airbnb, then you might as well call yourself a miniature hotel and you're just compete with those guys at 100 bucks a night. Not the world I want to play in. Right. If you go off strictly off scarcity and say, look, there's nobody within, you know, X number of miles, the demand is greater than the supply, therefore I can charge a lot, well, just give it time, right? Because it's coming. You know, and I don't know if you've seen the new loans that Penny Mac handed down for short term rentals, but it's I have not. It's through the roof. Like what do you mean through the roof? It's like fixing a hurt. It's gonna get painful. Oh really? Yeah. Especially for guys like me where I was using Penny Mac because I can qualify for those, you know, secondary mortgages and I can sell them off the secondary market and I can get the low threes on the percentages. Yeah, they're fixing supposedly on April first. I think I saw something about that on on Facebook. Yeah. Yeah. And so the last way to look at Airbnb from my standpoint is uniqueness. So you know, a place with a great view, a great location, you know, a really cool creek, um, backyard, hot tub, you know, something that draws people to it where you can charge that premium and you're giving them that experience. Because I don't, if you're looking for a cheap place to stay in Yantis, I don't want you to come to my house. Right. Right. I want you to, you need to have money and right. you want to be alone and, and in a secluded area. And, you know, I want right. to hire in clients. Right. And if that means that it stays not booked, for 40% more than the other ones, that's fine. Mm-hmm. Because if I make $4,000 instead of $5,000, but I don't have to deal with you know people tearing up my stuff, great. Yep. You know, or yep. less arguments or whatever. Yep. So that's just the way I look at it. And uh, yeah, ultimately I've been very happy with the Airbnb experience. What else? I don't know, it's all good there. It's all good there. And then uh, this would be a good one. This, this, uh, be, this would be good. This would be good. The macroeconomic outlook. So I think short term, I think we're fine. Um, I do think that the supply chain is going to calm down. I think that's what's causing a lot of our inflationary problems. Um, you know, ultimately, the Fed can't make any crazy decisions. I think that for 22, I think we've got a, a midterm election coming up. And the Fed never wants to make any big monetary changes during an election cycle, right? Uh, I do think that uh, the red sweep is coming. I think that they have pushed so hard on this COVID thing. They've doubled down on it with vaccine your children and all this stuff um, that I think they're losing a lot of their progressives. And, and I think that's going to hurt. I, I really do. Um, I do have a nice prediction in here. And uh, you can quote me on this. Hopefully it comes true. I think Trump's going to run. And I think he's going to get his rallies and he's going to get his supporters all riled up. And then I think he's ultimately going to step back and he's going to support DeSantos. And he's going to try and push DeSantos in 24. DeSantis. DeSantis. Yeah, it was close. Um, I've never been one on which is probably spelling. Which is probably the best route. Correct. I don't go. want him to run. I don't want Trump to run. I think, um, you know, I think he's got a great following. Love the guy to death. I'm very appreciative for what he did. I think he did do a good job. I think that someone needs to censor his Twitter every once in a while. Um, but, you know, ultimately... I think that he served his time, and I'm appreciative of that. Because I can't tell you that if I was in the same shoes, that I would do that. You know, and I think this takes it back to, and I, don't, I think I told you this. I may have told you this. I asked my mentor, who's worth nine figures, why are you still doing what you're doing? 
because I can't say that I would, you know, I'm like, I'm trying to figure it out myself, right? right Why am I still right, doing what I'm doing? Right. And his answer was, if every guy like me and every guy like you kick back at our deer lease and put our feet up and say, you know what, I've already made it, then what would this country turn into in, in less than five years, in 10 years? If yeah. every single one of us was just like, eh, you know what, cool, I'm, then like our grandsons have nothing to look forward to. Right. right, because it's going to go to shambles because there's no men that have real leadership. And, and it won't affect y'all because y'all are already I've made already it. made it. Yeah. yeah, and you're not coming to my dear lease. I'm going to shoot you at the gate. Right. You know, and so, yeah, you know, I thought that was pretty cool. But, you know, I think that from a short-term perspective, I'm not a doom and gloom guy. I think that supply chain does calm down. I think inflation fears begin to unwind. I think that the, the constraint of labor stays. I think that the gig economy continues to boom. I think we're gonna we're gonna continue to see the rise of those labor markets increase, but I think that the commodities, you know, your steel, your wood, your iron ore, those things are gonna come back down. I think oil is gonna stabilize. Saudi Arabia's got to figure out what they want to do. You know, the thing about OPEC is, and the thing about oil and the supply is, they can walk outside with a shovel and dig a hole and hit oil, right? And so their ability to influx the market and and really increase the oil supply is there. It's you know, for the next five years, in my opinion, five to eight years, um, I guess I should say this. This is all just my opinion. I'm not a financial not, advisor, right? Not at all. I'm not <laughs> a doctor or a lawyer. Uh, but I did stay in Holiday Express the other night, so there is that. Um, yeah, that was great. That was a plug for people that are older than, like, 25. <laughs> they should see the, the um, commercials. But, you know, I think that oil is, is going to be on a good run for the next five to eight years, right? There's no way you can flip a switch and, and turn oil off. I think from a long-term standpoint, they will um, begin to move over to renewables. You know, your your solar power and things like that are going to come into play. Uh, but from a short-term, from a short-term economic um, standpoint, I, I think that um, I think that the predictive measures um, have been skewed. It's kind of like we talked about earlier. Um, you know. Mortgage loans are not going to go into default. I think that the appreciation of people's homes has went up too much in order for them to go into forbearance, right? So, for instance, you know, and I know a lot of people say this, but it's like, you know, if, if you don't have the money to pay your mortgage right now, instead of going into foreclosure, you're just going to sell it. Yep. And there's so many buyers out there. It's like, why would you ever go into foreclosure because of the forbearance mor- uh, mortgage moratoriums that we're on? Um, and so... That's kind of like what I said earlier about putting all the predictive measures into a basket, juggling them up, throw them out on the counter, and it's just a hard thing to look at. Um, I do think that ultimately we will start to see kinks in China's armor. Um, you know, I think the Evergrande is just a beginning of, to see their infrastructure begin to fail. They are so tightly controlled, you know, from their facial recognition to all their social media. Every major corp has bounced. Facebook, Google, LinkedIn was the last one. What are they censoring on LinkedIn, right? They anybody that speaks are they? They're gone. They're no longer in China. None of those corporations. Oh, I see what China. you mean. Gotcha, yeah, gotcha, they've gotcha, all gotcha. pulled out of okay. China, uh, all because of the censorship, right? Yeah. And then it, as China continues to do what China does, and and push down that control, I think that we'll begin to see that the, the kinks in their armor, and then begin to slowly slip from being second in line. Um, you know, one of the biggest things, and I don't know if you've watched the documentary on it, but it, it really shocked me. In Q4 of 2019, so before COVID, before out, COVID, they held the military Olympics in, guess, Wuhan, China. No kidding. Yeah. 
the military, 80 countries brought in the top brass of the military to go to the military Olympics in Wuhan, China, where they already had an outbreak of COVID. So I'm not going to sit here and say that I think they did it on purpose because I don't know. I think that there's no question in my mind that the virus was mutated in the lab. Um, now, whether it was released on purpose or not, you know, that's so in-depth knowledge that you'd have to go in and really, you know, that's that's hard to say, right, definitively. And I think anybody that does say it definitively is, is probably lying to themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they have proven that it was, you know, genetically modified in the lab. And so right. I, I can buy onto that. The thing that I think where China really shot themselves in the foot is that they didn't tell everybody, right? They kept saying, no, we don't have a problem, we're good, no issues, and then all of a sudden it's like, okay, yeah, there's a major problem and we're locked in the whole world. You know what I mean? It's yeah, like, yeah. that's when they just lost everybody's trust. Freaked everybody out. Yeah, and so that, that kind of goes into long-term what I think that people start to pull out of there. Um, but short-term, I think this year, I think it's going to be fine. I don't see housing crashing. I don't see the stock market crashing. I think that the Fed's going to slowly you know, increase the, the interest rate by 500 basis points. Not a big deal. Um, I like looking at other countries and what, what they've done whenever they've gotten in inflationary periods. Um, but other people have faced like 1,000% inflation and we're at like 6, right? And so don't get me wrong, 6, 7 is still high. Um, and that's the consumer price index, right? So how how skewed is that number right. really, you know, whenever they take like the top economic predictors out of it. So they took like fuel out of it and stuff. You know, I found that funny, but... Um, and his fuel's up like 8% or something. Yeah, like right. right. <laughs> no, we don't want to measure that one. No, that was, that was really good. Um, you know, and then, like, what was the one that I really, like, somebody, I think it was Chamath or Joe Rogan, somebody lost it over the um, the increase in inflation over the Thanksgiving meal and how they replaced turkey with, like, soybeans. Soybeans. <laughs> And they were like, well, per ounce, you get better protein out of the soybeans. Yeah, like, if you use soybeans, it's like 16 cents cheaper that or something per pound. That was the greatest thing. Yeah. And that, like, who, I think it was, maybe it was Joe Rogan, was like vividly pissed off. I mean, that. I mean, yeah. It's I like, mean, it makes no sense. It's like, your, your fight for inflation is the fact that you replaced, a, you know, one product with the other. That's not, that's not quite not how it works. But, um, no, I think, I think 22 would be a good year. I think that, um, I think it'll continue the bull run. And, you know, one of the bigger problems is, is that every, every political candidate just wants to say, not on my watch. They just keep kicking the ball down the line. And, uh, you know, I think it kind of goes into the long term. It goes into my prediction for cryptocurrencies and everything. But Well, something, I think the, I think the biggest deal on that, that end, like you say, not on my watch, uh, well, there's two things. I think you're 100% right on the, the, like the housing market. Yeah. It's increased 20%, yeah. 30% in the last, everywhere, everywhere, and sometimes, some places more. Right. In the last two years, so you know, even at the very beginning, if you lost your job and you haven't paid in two years, your two hundred thousand dollar house is now worth three hundred. Right, sell it. And or there's buyers that would love to go out there and buy it for two fifty all day long in two weeks, right? Yep. And there's hundreds of them. So, like, and and this is this is weird because I we just put a house on a contract uh, in Call Station, and this this is this. This is a broker that um, you know has been. She's a she's a real estate broker. She sold it to us off market, and uh, she was like, "You you guys got to be ready for the for all the short sales that are coming." And like, it's a great clickbait, you know, headline deal. Um, but if you just you have to go back and look at the fundamentals of everything, right? Right? Like, yes, people are going to forbearance. Absolutely, mm-hmm. people can't pay their mortgages. It's only a small percentage of all mortgagees, and those mortgagees, they're freaking 
equity has skyrocketed right. as opposed to 08 where it collapsed and then everybody couldn't pay anything because everybody had four different mortgages. Yeah. Well, nobody can get mortgages anymore. Oh, dude, I can right? tell you, I had a hard time getting one. And I was, dude, I was livid. I was like, what are you talking about? Like, you know, I, I mean, it was so frustrating when I was going through qualifying for some of these secondary homes and stuff on these Airbnbs. And I'm like, if there's anybody you should want to throw money at, it's me. And here's my pro forma. Here's my business model. Here's my proven stuff. By the way, here's all my assets. Here, like, what are you arguing with? You know what I mean? And it's just, it goes back to, they don't want to get themselves in that position they were in in 08 which was financing everybody and their dog for mm-hmm. more money than they could afford. And so I, I respect that and I understand it. At the same time, I'm frustrated by it. Right. But I think that the housing thing, like you said, you know, the multifamily is not somewhere that I, I'm not bullish on multifamily right now. I think that, you know, and again, real estate is... And, and multifamily as, as like small multifamily or like big, huge big multifamily? complexes. Yeah, yeah I think absolutely. that, you know, this market in Bryan College Station is completely different than, than other markets, right? Because we have such a concentration yeah. of students. But, right. Um, I think we're in, that, we're in a little bubble. Yeah, you know that in real estate as a whole, and I don't know if I had this conversation with you or not, but it, it terrifies me about like the renters, right, and the way that the world was headed. I think we're kind of shifted after COVID, but one of the biggest things, if you look at from just a traditional family's um, ownership, right, as they get older, right. Let's just take my parents for instance. They get to where they are now. They have ten acres and a house and a barn and a pool, and that that place is nearly paid off. Right, that is their largest asset. Is that is that house? Right, yeah. they've been paying on it forever. They they grew their kids up there and everything, and now they want to downsize or retire. They can sell that place, and it's worth let's call it five hundred thousand dollars. They can get that bulk of cash. They can put it in a brokerage account. They can earn five percent on it, whatever it is, seven percent, and then they can draw off that forever on top of their social security, on top of their four hundred one ks and stuff like that coming. Right, but the biggest thing they had was that asset. Well, whenever all you do is rent and you rent, you know houses and you rent apartments you never build that asset up and like people people always talk about oh we're just going to rent forever and it's like well when does the game stop you know because eventually you're going to become unemployable you're going to be a walmart greeter you know what i mean it's like i just think that i think they're going to have to be in other assets right i think that owning a home though is very important for the average american because that allows you to build that asset over time and then you turn around and you're able to sell it or pull a heloc against it or something and you have a stockpile of cash there and it's been appreciating you have uh, the tax benefits of it. So I'm glad to see that a lot of people are going out and buying their homes. And, and I think that's why they, in the deflux of people leaving multifamily and wanting to live in these tiny little places and they're wanting to go out and buy you know, an acre or whatever it is and live on the land and stuff yep. like that, um, I'm happy to see it. Well, and I think the only, the only thing that, you know, I, I, I don't see the, the real estate market just kind of exponentially uh, increasing like it has in the no, last two years. It's probably, with the demand we see, it's probably just going to kind of sit there, right. right, until rents can, can come up and wages can come up and affordability gets a little better. Um, I think that's the biggest problem is affordability right now. Yeah. Um, and But I, I think that's why there's all these um, down payment assistance and... There's talk of 40-year mortgages, which is just going to make the payment cheaper. Right. Um, well, that's that kind of gives back to the fight for student loan forgiveness, right, is the whole purpose is to put more money in the average American's pocket monthly. That's why whenever they gave the stimulus out, they didn't just go and say, all right, we're going to bail out these X businesses. It's, you know, they, they almost said let capitalists decide, right? They gave everybody $1,200 for whatever it was, $2,500. I didn't get shit, by the way. Yeah. You didn't get anything? Nope. You all people qualified, right? I mean, no. The reason was I didn't. I didn't file for unemployment. 
Ah, okay. Well, they give all these people, and that's ultimately what they decided was, you know, almost like capitalists decide of, if we give the entire country 1200 bucks, then they get to go buy whatever they want to buy, right? And they get to stimulate the economy in that manner. Um, and so, you know, I think that the real estate stuff, if you look at it, like, there's no money in building uh, starter homes, right? Even, you know, your, your volume builders, your DR Hortons, right? They're building three hundred, four hundred thousand dollars $400,000 houses because there's just not a whole lot of money there. So if you want to buy a starter home, two hundred and under, and this is just in our local market, you know, around here, uh, you really have to buy a used home, if you will, and mm-hmm. and then you need to buy flipped homes or whatever. Well, there's only so many of those on the market, or there's not that many. And so, as they continue to build more and more new homes, well, those are higher end homes because they can make more margin, and we're all here to make money. And so, it's a weird dichotomy, and I don't see it playing out for the next. I think it's going to be over years you know, maybe five years to get that thing all figured out. And then in our, you know, let's just take Texas, for instance, we have such an influx of people coming in that, I mean, you saw houses in Austin, you know, knocking down $250, $300 a square foot. It's just like, my goodness. And and so you're paying, you're paying 600 G's for a 1500 square foot house. Yeah, it's crazy. It's crazy. But I, I, I I see like a tiny little luck. I don't see it exponentially increasing like that, but I do see it kind of playing it out. And And I hope, I hope it doesn't because, um, like I I know Austin is is that 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 expensive, but you also like I I don't know how, and I just probably just experience, but I don't know how sustainable that is. Yeah, like how I don't know how how long has California been that expensive? Like I don't know. Yeah, no, it hasn't been um, forever. Oh, and if, if people are coming out, right? What's it gonna What's gonna happen to all the all the all the the prices, right? Because right. everybody wants to live there because it's awesome because it is. Yeah. Until you like get taxed, and then you have all the regulations, and then you have all the permits, and this, this, and that, and it's just like until the gas is six dollars a gallon, right? Um, so yeah, let's let's roll into the long term stuff, or as long as the Fed doesn't do anything stupid. You yeah, that's fair. About that. I mean, you know, if they jack up the rates, um, you know, it's funny they they came out and said, well, look, we're going to raise them three or four times in twenty two, we're going to go five hundred basis points each time, um, you know, all right, cool, market rallied after that, that's great. Uh, and then all of a sudden they released their minutes and it was like, well, hang on, your meeting minutes and your speech did not align. What do you, you know what I mean? It's like they, they talked about um, basically doing the opposite and, and vastly increasing it, starting to sell off some of the assets, therefore reducing the money supply. And, and so it like, but I think, you know, it's tough. Like all we're doing is reading a piece of paper that they, you know, their meeting minutes. So it's like, you know, if some random dude throws this idea out there, it kind of, um, it pulls away their legitimacy whenever they do stuff like that because it's like, okay, do y'all really like understand what you're doing? And like, you know, like, and so it, it was kind of frustrating, but nonetheless, I think that um, it, this entire economy, every, you know, everything in the economy is based on perception, right? And so if it's doom and gloom or, you know, if it's got a, a good outlook or a bad outlook, that's going to adjust the markets accordingly. And so, um, you know, I've said this a million times money is not created. Uh, it, you know, matter is, is neither created nor destroyed. Money is neither created nor destroyed. It's only created, right? So whenever they talk about the economy going down, it's like, well, it has to come back up because the, it's not like the money just got burned on fire, right? If we all sell our Tesla stocks today, we still have that money in an account, which we want to invest somewhere else. We just hate Tesla, right? right? I wish. But <laughs> so, you know, I, I'm, that's why I'm bullish on it. I think that we'll stay the reserve currency of the world. I don't think that we're going anywhere and that's a good segue right into the long-term stuff, um, unless you have another question on Fed doing stupid stuff. Uh, the only thing I would say is I don't think they can, 
and this is more I think they probably should for the long-term health of the economy is slow down the buying and then um, and jack the rates higher but I don't think they can do that um, because it's going to create a shock in the in the markets and um, especially in a uh, election cycle right um, it just would look terrible like it would make like even if it wasn't Biden's fault because the Fed did it yeah it would make Biden look I mean, he already doesn't Worse look great, but is. he would look terrible, yeah. right? Yeah. And I, I just don't, I don't see it happening. Yeah. No, I don't either. I don't either. Uh, long term, I think, you know, I hope this is more of a selfish uh, statement, but I think that uh, value-based equities make a comeback and tech uh, begins to come off their high of, you know, some of their crazy outlandish uh, valuations. You know, you look at Uber, who's never made a dollar, right? And Tesla did that for a long time where they said, look, we're going to sacrifice profits for the sake of scale. And that's fine. Amazon did the same thing. Amazon lost money for like 10 years. Um, but I think that at the end of the day, a lot of these value-based stocks are discounted um, because they're not sexy. Yes. Take fire protection, for instance. Right? There's nothing sexy about us. But we make a lot of money and we just do work. You know what I mean? And it's like we wake up every day and we get stuff done and we make tons of money. And so at what point does that valuation come back versus the SaaS software that you know, anybody can write, uh, you know, and so I, I just think that eventually that swing, that teeter totter is going to come back. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know when. I hope for my sake, about right when BlackRock IPOs uh, would be great. Um, but no, I, I think that, you know, I think that's a long term outlook on something. I think, like I said, with China going down, um, gotcha, boy. I, I can only hope that we bring manufacturing back. You know, I'm bullish on South America. Um, you know, I think from a logistical standpoint, from a supply chain standpoint, from a workforce standpoint, uh, there's a whole lot of problems down there, you know, with the cartel and their, their government and everything we, that would have to get shaped up. Um, but, you know, in terms of you know, transportation and things like that, um, we've got to figure something out, right? And we've regulated ourselves out of competition, in my opinion, for a long time, uh, where we're just too expensive, you know, from people not wanting to work to... You know, we've got 37 people that have to measure the air, the soil, the ground, the dirt, the water, you know, and, and every one of those guys got to get paid. And, and so, and I'm not saying anything bad against um, the environment or anything, but it's like at some point we do outregulate ourselves out of competition. Um, and so I would love to see us move some of our manufacturing to South America. I think Amazon's already done it. Um, uh, it just, it's tough with, you know, Amazon can't go in and control the, you know, Mexican government. Right, and help yeah, them, right? That, right. There's only so much they can do. Right. Um, so at what point do we step in and, and try and help out or something like that? Um, I guess this gets me into my uh, into my crypto, my crypto spiel. Yeah. So it's either going to light some people on fire or, um, yeah, it'll be interesting. Well, it, it probably it probably will um, because, I, you know, everybody and their mother right now has a crypto bug. And, um, but I'm not gonna be surprised by your answer because another, I, I know I always say, oh, my uncle, my uncle. I texted him one day and it was something about crypto. I don't know what it was. Yeah. Oh, I think he was talking about China banning crypto. Mm -hmm. And I never thought I'd get this text back. And he says, I think US should ban crypto too. Oh, wow. And I, I, I kind of had to process that because yeah. I was like, like, I see it 24 7. 
Yeah. Like it is, it is the thing. It is the thing. Right. Like there's NFTs, there's crypto, there's Bitcoin, there's Ethereum. Yeah, there's like, Web 3.0. And everybody knows about Dogecoin and, oh, and yeah. Shiba Inu coin and whatever. Like, yeah. And I, I know people who put a hundred bucks in Dogecoin and pulled 10 grand out. Yeah. Right. And then, so like when stuff like that happens, it's yeah. like, it's a gamble. It's a risk. But like you, you see stuff like that and it's like, yeah. Why would you want to ban something like that? Right. Um, and, and, you know, he's 45. He's, he's, manage a bunch of stuff and he's he's learned a lot more than just okay this is a 20 year old that just wants to yeah. make some money right yeah, yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm interested to see your yeah my your perspective um, you know I think I think that stuff is is a huge gamble right if you want to if you want to put a hundred bucks in and get 10 grand go to Vegas right let's play craps or something let's, let's bet on the football game um, it's a very speculative asset uh, and it's it's really hard to call it an asset right it's like what is the use case I think that's one of the biggest things, right, behind what will actually gain traction and stay here is what is the use case and what is the, the utility behind it uh, versus what is gambling with Dogecoin and just kind of, you know, speculatively Correct. saying, you know, because you've also, I think everybody's seen the ones where it's like, oh, I've got, you know, $10 million worth of this coin, but oh, P.S., there's zero liquidity. Right. Right. So you have $10 million worth of nothing. Um, it, it's kind of like me and my, my private, equity. private equity stuff. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. it's just legal. Yeah, yeah, it's just legal. But um, you know, so I think that's one of the big things. I think that we'll, we'll see it cool down. I think you're going to see a ton of the the altcoins going away, and you're going to see the utility cases move into it. I do think that um, that what you're going to see is the payment rails of like Visa and Mastercard. They're all going to get demolished. Hundred um, percent agree. And I can't wait. It's just like realtors. I can't wait till y'all get y'all's day of reckoning. Um, <laughs> I'll be there for it. And yeah. I, so I think that's why EXP and Real yeah. are going to grow and take over the traditional real estate uh, uh, model because it's they've got to come with some outside the box thinking. Right. They've got to. I mean, and and it's it's just it's it's almost making the agents work for work for themselves rather than working for the broker because right. like you go with Century Twenty One, um, as a new agent you have to pay fifty or you have to pay twelve percent off the top, so they now you're eighty eight percent you get half of that. You get forty four. So, you're making nothing yeah. on all the work you did. The broker just made fifty percent of your commission plus twelve percent. Right. Of the whole thing. Right. And it's just kind of like, okay, so you're essentially just keeping them in their sixty thousand, sixty to eighty thousand dollar job, right? Um, so that why? they could go get uh, guaranteed to them in the office. Yeah, I right? think the, the issue, like realtors are getting extremely diluted, right? It's too easy to get the test, and then how do you separate yourself in this market? How do you create value to others, right? And then at the same time, with the price appreciation of land and houses, why are y'all still taking six percent? You know what I mean? I think, and I think that the problem is, and, and I'm not a realtor, right? So I'm not inside y'all's closed door conversations. But y'all better be having that conversation behind closed doors of, guys, what, what are we going to do to differentiate ourselves and, and attract these sellers as well as buyers yep. and stop, you know, and, and come up with creative ways? Because at the end of the day, the data is the only thing protecting you. And, and I can tell you that I am personally working on creating a data system to extort what you know well, and, is going on, and that's you know there, there's a bunch of talk of that, um, you know even even but among realtors, right? Mm -hmm. Like even my my uh, my my guy Sam Smith, um, he's like he's is like that the London dude. Yes, the, yeah. he's like f the MLS, like f the NAR. Yeah, like he wants to destroy them and create a 
a national MLS in the metaverse. Oh, okay. Right? Okay. Which is a crazy idea, but like, right. you know, they have, they're such, like you call them data Nazis, but they really are. Like, mm-hmm. I want to flip a house in San Antonio. No, you don't even know. I have to go <laughs> join the MLS. Crazy. I have to pay the dues. I have to be a member. Yeah. Same thing for Houston. And that's only three markets. Right. But what about Austin? You know, what about Dallas? What about San Marcos? What about Waco? And yeah. so it's, it's like, you know, that's, I think it, uh, it's almost, and that's, that's why I don't like, uh, I'm not gonna say I don't like T-Rex, but like, yeah. uh, we were talking about a, an off market deal yesterday and this realtor was like, well, so how, how should we run this? And, you know, with my experience, not being a realtor and being an investor, I'm like, you know, transactions are a hell of a lot easier without a broker involved. Yeah. Yeah. It just are. Right. Like there's no compliance, there's no IBS, there's no re- representations, there's no this, that, and that. And it's just like, here you go, sign these papers, sign the sell disclosure, we're done. Yeah. Um, well, it so. just leaves room for opportunity like with uh, Zillow coming in, you know, and, and obviously they messed up the iBuy and stuff, but there's people that aren't messing it up uh, where they're coming in and buying houses. And, and I think that you're going to see that moving forward, but it's because it, there is value in realtors, right? I, and I believe that. Uh, but at the same time, they've got to be able to differentiate themselves. And, and I don't think making the test harder is going to be the route to go. Uh, I think it's going to be creative financing structure and being able to show that they're adding value in, in a certain metric. Well, I think um, it's going to be going, you know, you say they, you know, how can you charge 6%? I think the only reason that you can um, and, and the reason why, and this is what I've experienced. Um, I've, now I've experienced uh, crappier realtors saying, hey, I'll just charge you 1%. Yeah. Um, just to, to do it, just right? Done with, yeah. And then you go do that one with one percent, it doesn't sell. Okay. You now you go to this really good broker yeah. or realtor who has the systems down, who has the marketing down, who knows everything. Yeah. And they'll sell it for three percent in two weeks. Right. And so I think that's where, I think that's where the difference is. And I think, you know, it, it's it's getting there and it it uh it, it accelerated because of COVID because as regulation gets harder, mm-hmm. Um, you have to know ins and outs because people are going to get screwed. Right. And that's why T-Rex exists to protect the people. Right. Um, so I think it's just competition is, is going to separate that. Um, but I mean, the, the, the barrier to entry is too low. It just Way is. Yeah. Because like, I know a bunch of realtors who don't know anything about investments. And that's that's the only reason I have even an edge on anything. Right. It's because I know about investments. Right. You know, so. Right. We we got way off. We got way off crypto. So, I think in, I think what you're going to see is a lot of the altcoins coming down. I don't think that there's going to be much speculation behind NFTs and all. You know, the thing with the NFTs, right? It's like I don't know if you've seen, but people are creating like twelve accounts, right? And they have they have a hundred ETH and one account, and then they create these twelve accounts and they buy this NFT and then they buy it and buy it and buy it and buy it. So yes. One dude buying it, and yes. then all of a sudden you buy it because you think it's worth thirty ETH, and then you just get stuck holding the bag of some dumb monkey. And it's like, oh, you know what I mean? It's like, oh, I got this thing. It's worth, you know, $10,000. So I, I saw one yesterday. It was minted for like three three Ethereum. Mm-hmm. And uh, it said it sold for point, point oh one, so like 30 bucks. Yeah. And people were going crazy in the comments. And it was like obvious. Like this dude created another account, sold to himself, took the loss. Yep. But now he owns this one for $30. It's worth 200 grand. Right. Right. Makes sense. So he, he, made, he, he didn't legally make this gain because mm-hmm. he didn't sell it. He can t- tax harvest this loss, right? And nothing's different. Yeah, I think the taxation, the regulation is going to come down on them. The taxation is getting very real. Where you know, even even an exchange from you know Bitcoin to ETH or something like that is taxed. That exchange from one coin to the other because they're considering it the sell and the purchase of an asset, oh, just okay. like me buying and selling stocks. You know, and so 
that kind of taxation on it is not going to allow it to become a monetary currency that's used day to day. Because that means that every time I swipe my Bitcoin card, you know, you're having to sell a piece of my Bitcoin. So therefore, that's a taxation. And then buy this, and then I'm getting hit with tax on, you know, an actual purchase. Yep. Um, you know, and so you got them now where they're trying to like, okay, do the, the buy now, pay later. So that we accumulate these transactions over the period of a month or a year, and then we, we swap all that into Bitcoin. Well, the problem with that is, is Bitcoin fluctuates, the price fluctuates so much, right? And that, that's my pool for the digital dollar. So I'm just going to throw it out at you. So if, if you and I move to South America, let's say Venezuela, right? And they're bullish on Bitcoin, and we're trying to start a landscaping company, and we buy five Bitcoin. And it, it's very hard to, to get cash flow projections and, and to buy equipment and things like that when your monetary currency is going up and down so hard, right? And so it, it's pretty much impossible. You're not going to be able to buy a lawnmower today for five Bitcoin, and then tomorrow that be worth $200,000, whereas yesterday it's worth 4000 You need to touch this thing. No, you're good. You're, you're good. good. Um, and, and so when I <clears throat> when I go back to the digital dollar, right? Everybody, it's funny. I was having this conversation the other day, and somebody's like, well, "What's the difference between a digital dollar and a and a uh, credit card?" And so you know, right now, if I hand you a hundred dollar bill, right, it's a hundred bucks. You know, we can all agree it's a hundred dollars. But there's no serial number tied to it. There is no digital stamp to it. There is no NFT portion to that. Whereas the digital dollar, each individual dollar is is a unique device, right? It has its own stamp to it. It's it's essentially on the blockchain, if you will. Um, and so that's what creates the digital dollar version mm-hmm. of it, right? So now I, I pay you every month, you know, whatever it is, your W-2 income. You get your $4,000, and then from there you disperse it on expenses, whether that's mortgage, H-E-B, whatever it is you're doing. And then, again, all that stuff just flows up in terms of a form of data. But what that does by creating this digital dollar is allows other countries like Venezuela and other places to use a currency, and it's backed by the U.S. government that has a reserve to it. So therefore, there's no more fluctuation. Because let's say that we, we go down, and I don't know what Venezuela's, let's just say it's the pesos. And we, we have 5,000 pesos. It's the Bolivar. And the Bolivar. And then the government prints a ton of it, and the inflation goes to the roof, and the 20 grand you and I saved up just got turned into pennies. Well, you know that's not going to happen with the digital dollar. The problem with other countries and other citizens of countries adopting the U.S. dollar is whoever controls the government, or whoever controls the currency controls the government, right? right which controls the people, which controls the power. To some extent, right? right? I mean, we have the U.S. dollar, but you know, to say the government controls us is, is a far stretch. I don't think that we're controlled by any means. But if, if all of a sudden I got a text message that said my bank account was cut off, now what? Right. Well, I got me, I got multiple AR-15s, and that's about all I got left. You right. know what I mean? And so it, that's the only, the only downfall to it is that uh, what would other countries think of the U.S. dollar being prominent down there? But as the people of that country, you need some sort of, of means to barter that isn't going to get demolished over the next five years because you want to build prosperity. Right. Without law and order, there is no prosperity. Without structure, there is no prosperity. Without a common money supply that we can all agree on over the long term, there's nothing. And, and so, you know, a lot of people, and this is why I'm extremely bullish on our country, on, on America as a whole. I mean, don't get me wrong, we got issues. You know, I think we can talk about those all day. But, you know, we have a, a great structure, we have a great system, we have good infrastructure. Um, but it, it, I implore you to please go visit, you know, the third world portion of Mexico. Go visit some of these other countries and understand what these people are up against. So a year ago today, or this week, um, I went to Mexico with uh, my roommate, his girlfriend, and uh, another friend of mine. And um, 
we went to and we stayed in uh, Ohinaga. Uh, uh, where we stay at? So Ohinaga is the city in Mexico, and there's another there's another city on the other side um, of, of in Texas on the border. I don't remember what I don't remember what it was called, but uh, Presidio, Presidio. Okay. Um, so we were, we stayed in Presidio, and Chase's parents have a house there, and because Chase's mo- Chase's mom and dad are from Mexico, they live in Ohinaga. And so we got to go over there to Okinaga. And, uh, like, dollars are worth a hell of a lot more there yeah. than they are here. Yeah, 20, like, a lot more. Years. Right. Um, and so, you know, we, we go over there. We we went and had lunch with his his grandparents. And it was the best Mexican food I've ever had in my life. Uh, it was awesome. But, and, and they were they were doing well for, 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 for Mexico, right? But... You know, they all live adjoined to each other. Yeah. And there's a little, tiny little place in the back, just concrete, there's no yard. Um, and then we went to the market. And we went to, I don't know, some, I don't, I don't even know where we were, but we were we were in some markets and in, in like a flea market type deal. And there's kids coming up to you because they, they can tell you're American. Like yeah. You're just a white guy, yeah, yeah. clean cut, you know, whatever. And uh, there's kids coming up and they have... But that buckets of candy, and these kids are probably six or seven buckets of candy, and they're like, Mister, and then they can't speak English, but they're like, you know, it says something about buy this, and they're like, por favor or something like that, and it's like, ten cents, oh wow, and it's just cheap, and but that's that's their reality, and uh, I remember I think I, gave, I think I gave one of them a dollar, and it was it's just a dollar, like it's pretty damn worthless here, yeah, um, and there to them it's. It's like twenty bucks, yeah, right, and it's a he- it's a lot of money there, and they just were over the moon, and it was it gives you a dose of reality. It's like, do we really have that many problems, right? Yeah. Like I live in a place that, for for call station, it's a nice place, but I live in a duplex. Everybody's like, oh, I have to live in a house. I have to live by myself. Yeah. I have to have working water in my fridge, not just the sink. I have to have. Perfect AC. I have to have perfect carpet, perfect floors. It has to be pristine. Go to Mexico mm-hmm. and take a look at the kids sitting in front of the grocery store door selling candy for a living. I think the problem is, is most people don't like they they get to a point in life where they just don't struggle anymore. And uh, and I I like you have to embrace the struggle. That's kind of like what deer hunting, like going out and living, you know, in the, in the wilderness for a little bit. Like it, it'll wake you up. I just sleep on the floor tonight. With no pillow, and just see how that does. You know, take one cold shower. You know what cold I mean? Cold showers it's, suck. I, they I, feel good at the end. Yeah, but they suck. Yeah, and so it's just I think people kind of lose touch with what the struggle is really like because they just get so comfortable, and every night they lay down in their cozy little bed. And have you ever read uh, David Goggins' book uh, "Can't Hurt Me"? Mm, I have. Yeah, the portion of it where he's like, "Yeah, this sounds real I think sweet." I think you're I've read it twice. You're sitting on your couch, and you know you're eating your little lollipop, and you're fat, and and you think, you know what, this dude's out here running these these marathons. I could probably do that. And he's like, "But you can't even run to the door," you know. And it's like it, it's so true that um, you know it's funny. You, you watch stuff on TV like a, a guy drop a ball in the NFL or something, and you know. You think you can do that, but it's like these guys are full blown athletes. You know? So I think I think the problem is a lot of people don't struggle anymore, um, and, and so they don't. But they also don't have that perspective. They don't travel to these other third world countries. They don't see that stuff. And if you don't see it, and you don't have that it's perspective, not it's not real. That's right. And that's the same problem with censorship. Is if you don't hear it, and you don't, and then you don't begin to read about it and understand it, eventually it just goes away. 
look at China and the TM, the Tiananmen Square or the Tiananmen Square. Um, that, there was a, a reporter that went over there and asked like a hundred people if they knew what it was. They didn't know, and it's like that's one of the greatest revolutions of y'all's time was y'all's ability to put up against your government, and they yeah. didn't know what it was because yeah. it's not real. Right, right. it went away because not erase from history books. No, yeah. there's no social media. No, yeah. Nothing. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that, that's kind of my push on the, the digital dollar. I think that um, we'll see that come out this year, uh, I think. And, and I, I'm very curious to see how it takes on. Um, I don't think it's going to replace like the physical dollar and all that. I just think it's going to become another asset class. Um, it's going to be another way to increase money velocity. You know, that's what the economy is, is one man's expenses or another man's income. And as long as we all, from a perspective shift point, we think that the world is in a good place and we're going to continue going upward, we continue spending money, you continue earning money, you spend that money, and then the world just keeps spinning, right? This is just another way to throw it in there. I think that crypto as a whole is going to get regulated. I think that eventually it will, it will fall to the side of being just another asset class, uh, speculative asset class at that. I think that some of them will have use cases, you know, the ones that have utility, those will survive. Web 3.0 will be here. It's already here. It's it's happening. Um, what is that? Uh, I mean, it, it's really just a decentralized version of the internet. It's what they're trying to build. Okay. I think Metaverse is coming too. I think that um, you know, if you haven't done Oculus and with the virtual reality, it is pretty cool. Um, I think the decentralized um, platforms will be here. I don't think that it's going to take off next year. I think it's going to take a little bit. Um, you know, at the end of the day, the reason why your your Googles and your Facebooks are built is because they are centralized. Right, they can make decisions, they can pivot. Um, mm -hmm. But with decentralization, sounds cool, right? But and it, and it can work, you know, when I say that MasterCard and Visa are gonna fall off the rails, um, that was one point we didn't really talk about a whole lot. But, you know, the, the decentralized can work from a monetary standpoint, but the, the regulation will never let it happen on a global scale. Mm -hmm. You know, they can't lose their foothold. You know, the US military is always gonna back, you know, because we, we lost touch with gold a long time ago. Well, the only thing back in the U.S. dollars, U.S. military. Well, go ahead and double cross them and see how that goes for you. You know, the guy with the most nukes usually wins the war, and and I don't think anybody wants to step up to him. You know, nobody's done it successfully, and I don't see it happening in my lifetime, um, unless somebody creates a technology that just you know obliterates us. Right. Um, and at that point, I don't really care because it's not my problem anymore. I'm gone. <laughs> but um, yeah. Now, what was what were some of the questions you had on that? I don't have that much. I mean, it's it. Uh, I think that's a definitely a, a more um, realistic case because you know there, there's all these oh it shouldn't exist and then oh it shouldn't um, it should be the only thing. But it's like often, often in life in anything, it's usually not this and it's usually not that. It's usually right here in the middle, right? Um, at some average or some yeah. mean, right? And I, I that's that's kind of what I've always live like like I've never gotten so sucked up in this side and so sucked up in that side I've always kind of seen the long term goal and it's like well it's probably this yeah. right it's like when two people argue well there's this side of it and there's that side of it and there's a lot of middle ground that's right. probably the correct answer so yeah, yeah I mean I think that um, I, I don't think it's going to go anywhere it's kind of like why Bitcoin and Bitcoin cash and then you know, the Bitcoin 2.0 or whatever. And I, and I really dug into it for a long time to understand like the hash rates and what it meant to mine it and the blockchain, how it's on everybody's computer and it's trying to solve a complex equation and really it's just guessing and checking. 
and that's what the computer is doing over and over. And then once it gets it right, it gives it a little you know token, and that's its that's its reward for figuring out the equation. And we all agree on the ledger, and you know all this stuff. And um, it's cool. It's cool technology. Um, again, I think it goes back to use case and what can it be used for, um, and how can you harness that energy and that power. But it's just like right now with the Kazakhstan stuff going on and how that's hurting Bitcoin. It's like it just goes to show you another instance, just like when China shut it down and, and Bitcoin tank because of all the miners. It's like it's just another instance of, you know, the, the destabilization of it, you know, right. and it's it's instability and price variation. And, and again, I, I think it goes back to it is an asset class. Is it going to take over the world, and we're all going to you know use Bitcoin as legal tender? It can't trans. It can transact like seven transactions per second. Mm-hmm. That's a joke. It needs to be like seven hundred thousand. Mm-hmm. Like we're not even in the same world. Why seven million? Yeah, it's not even close. Like we're not even on the same planet. Yeah. You know. So yeah. again, I, I do. I look forward to Mastercard and Visa getting tanked. Because I think that the fees they take off every credit card transaction is ridiculous. Yeah. Um, so you know, I think that those payment rails will change. Um, and that's that's why I buy. Uh, so I buy Bitcoin, Ethereum. Um, I buy VET, Cardano, and uh, I have no helium. I don't have any helium, and I have some. Uh, I've never, I haven't looked into it. I've uh, I have uh, some uh, CRO CRO coin uh, that I staked a long time ago. It's doing well. Um, but like I, the only reason I bought any of those is because they have obviously Bitcoin, but they have utility. Yeah, some they sort of use case. they have they have a a a plan, and they have this is what we're going to be used for. Right, and it's not just a hey, I have a thousand bucks Dogecoin. Right, like whatever yeah. you know. Uh, so I hundred percent agree. Yeah, what makes a great leader? Oh man, you know I think um, I take a different approach to the leadership thing. I, you know I think a lot of people would name off random characteristics of what great leaders are and are not and I think one of the big things for me is being inclusive with the team I think that's a big one I think a lot of people think leaders or great leaders need to have all the answers whereas my approach is that um, you know a great leader needs to allow all of his people to have a voice and then you have to choose the best answer right um, but that, that's a big They're part to find the answers I guess I don't have all the answers you know what I mean but I know that my team does and that you know through me they can all have a voice and then we can choose the best direction going forward right i think encouragement is a big one um you know encouraging and enabling others to reach points that they never thought they could right and, and sometimes that means letting them struggle and that's a hard thing to do is to to task someone with a task and then watch them struggle with it and you not step in and help them figure it out you just gotta let them keep struggling with it um, and then ultimately, as long as you've got the right person, they're going to see their way through it, right? If you don't have the right person, they may just lay down and quit on you. Right. Uh, but as long as you got the right person, I think they'll, they'll keep going. I think leading by example uh, is a big one, you know, practicing what you preach. Um, you know, one of the things whenever I first got into fire protection, um, in order to, you know, gain the trust of the guys, gain their respect, was I, I became an absolute expert. You know, all the way to the point where I taught classes in Georgia and Indianapolis and Washington. I traveled all around the country teaching classes on fire protection because I was such a subject matter expert on pumps and valves and systems and NFPA and how all this stuff plays in together. Um, and that gained the respect of my guys because I was able to turn around and translate that down to them to craft their skills behind mm-hmm. this industry. Um, it's not just work at the end of the day it's like this this is a profession 
and you want to know where it comes from, you know, like back in the day, they used to have wood that they would put up inside warehouses and they would drill holes in it and they would fill it with wax. And then when that wax would melt, that water would come out of that hole and that was the original fire protection system. Really? Yeah. And so it's like stuff like that where it's like if you're going to dedicate, I mean, I've been doing this since 2021. So I started in like 2015, you know, six, seven years of my life that I've been dedicated to just this then you need to be an expert. Right. You know what I mean? But I've met guys that have been doing this stuff for 20 years that still don't know that three stairwells in a building mean a 1,000 GPM fire pump, right? That's just code. Mm-hmm. How do you not have that memorized yet, mm-hmm. you know? So I think leading by example is a big one. Um, I, I know at, at one of the companies I work for, one of the things that they were notorious for was taking um, these high, high-fluting people, right? Harvard business grads, uh, West Point graduates, you know, taking these high-end guys and bringing them in and setting them down in place as a as a leader. And nine times out of 10, they failed. And they were great people, but they just didn't understand what they were doing. Right. Um, and so as a leader, you have to make it a point to be a subject matter expert. Learn what it is you're doing, learn the pain points of your people, understand what they're going through, uh, and then figure out how to be a resource you know, for them. Transparency um, is a huge one for me. I think that one of the biggest problems, and this is not gonna go anywhere, is that people are, they avoid the tough conversations. They don't want to have a man-to-man transparent talk. And I, I will put my guys in a room and I will say, this is what you said to me and this is what you said to me. And now, y'all are fixing to say it to each other. Because I just, you know, the elephant's on the table. Let's right. do this. You know what I mean? And I'm not here to get physical or violent. Like, I, I don't promote any of that stuff. We're going to have man-to-man talk and you're going to use your words. And, you know, every once in a while people get hot and bothered. You can tell. They start sweating, you know, red, face red and... And it's like, everybody take a chill pill. We're just going to have a conversation. You know what I mean? And, and let's all get it out on the table. And, you know, nine times out of ten, when you leave that room, everybody's happier. They got it off their chest. They had that conversation. I just don't – I think that dragging it on down the road or, or kicking that can just hurts everybody. Yep. Um, so I found that, that the ability to have tough conversations, be transparent, is really good. Uh, believe in the message that you're preaching. Um, you know, you can't sell something that you don't believe in. So I think that's a big part of it. Absolutely. Um, don't make it all about the business. You know, I think that's something that uh, it's taken me a while to, to really learn. But, like, my guys will, will sit down with me and talk about budgeting. They'll talk about investing. They'll talk about uh, their wives and, and their kids and, and, like, how, you know, life as a whole comes together. And I think that as a leader, that's important for them to be able to, to confide in you in, in important topics, you know. And so don't just – pigeonhole yourself and then I'm the business leader and this is all I'm about mm-hmm. um, you know it's like I, I told the guys the other day we were going over this book Traction and, and going through all the lessons that it has and everything and, and my final statement uh, to a couple of them was you know we do all this business reporting we do all this business meetings and, and all this stuff um, don't let this be the only meeting that you have you know like and what I mean by that is that you know, the most important relationship you have on this earth is with you and your significant other, right? I understand that, you know, we all have a higher being um, and you need to have a relationship there too, but you need to you need to sit down with your girlfriend, your wife, and, and reanalyze your life and, and, hey, are you happy? Is this what you wanted? Was it the past year? You know, the kids and, and all that stuff. Um, you know, it's important to, to take the same planning that we do in business and plan. With everything it. else. Yeah. Um, it's live life by design is kind of the quote that I go by. But yep. Um, you know, I think one of the things that I always tell people is you build a team so operationally excellent they don't need you anymore. Uh, and that's scary. 
you know, to think that. But at the same time, if you're that good, then you're just going to keep moving up. But you can't move up unless you replace yourself. Right. Right. So you've got to be able to replace yourself to move up the food chain. Um, and, and typically the guy or the girl that can do that, that can build that kind of a team, isn't a lazy person. So they're not just going to sit back and do nothing. They're going to continue to build. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that, that's and kind keep of putting goal. people in places to succeed. Right. Right. Yeah. And, and have those conversations with those people about, you know, what you see for their future and, and um, you know, how, how everything's progressing. Because a lot of people want to buy into their future. They want to know that there's a path. They want to know that there's a bigger, bigger item out there. Um, and, you, and you want to continue to add value. Um, I think that's one of the big things, you know, to, to digress from leadership is, is networking and adding value to others. Uh, and I don't mean monetary. You know, it, it's, it's being able to have expansion conversations and bring a different perspective to the table and, and talk about cryptocurrency. But, like, I got, I got a buddy of mine. He's knocking down 40, 50K a month in mining crypto. Yeah. And I go over there once every other week or so and sit down and talk to him. And half the time I tell him he's crazy. The other half, he shows me his bank account, and I'm crazy. Right, you know what I mean? Right. And so it's like, right. uh, but being being open to those perspectives and understanding that that everybody has their own unique and not, you know, don't just look at something and shut it down. Um, you know, from a networking perspective, it, it's so important to network with the right people, um, and, and that's tough to do. A lot of people aren't any good at it, you know. But I think the biggest thing with networking is trying to add value from a standpoint of. Um, bringing new light to that person's life. You know, in construction, I can bring a lot of help um, just because of, of my ability to, to read plans and, and understand how things are built and give gu- give guidance and stuff. And so um, that's one of my big things on, on networking is, is adding that common value. Um, what other questions you got? Um, on, on the leadership topic. Yeah. I think I really like the one, and this is the one that I, I try to do is just lead by example. Um, I'm I don't really know if I do it like on purpose. I'm just kind of doing what I do. Yeah. Um, like when I went and started a podcast, I didn't really start a podcast just to be like, hey, look, I have a podcast. You should do it too. But it's kind of like, um, and I don't I don't flip houses or invest in real estate because of that. It's just like that's just what I do, and and guys get get uh, guys get um riled up by that right um and they're inspired and that's basically the guy i was talking about earlier yeah. he's like he's, he's seen me he's, he's basically been seeing me doing this for the past year and he's like hey if he can do it i can do it right right um maybe it's not that the scale that i'm doing it um and i you know i'm literally this so tiny and not, not even funny but um like to them i'm doing big things and i'm always just like man i haven't done nothing yet yeah I, mean, I literally have done nothing yeah um, but you know, it's them buying, buying one house is a huge deal. And it really, right. it is, it is. Um, and so I think I like, I like giving people opportunity. Um, I like providing opportunities for people to yeah. succeed and grow. Um, and I think that's a, that's a big, um, uh, attraction, you know, when, when, when you see somebody that's, that's a boss and they're just telling people, telling people what to do, or you see this guy over here who's giving people opportunities and not not just berating them when they make mistakes. Um, I'm gonna go there 24/7 because I feel empowered and uh, I feel like I can, I can grow under that leader. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, what was the next one? Well, um, you told me you were, you told me I was gonna be surprised with this answer, but I yeah. I don't I don't think I am. Um, I probably you know I, I think a lot of people um, would just go straight into like, okay, you need to figure out. You know, 
how much can you retire on? You know, go yeah. this many houses, and, and that's that's good. That's really awesome. But uh, I, you know, it says how to evade the rat race. Yeah. Um, that's the question, and I, I like I've I follow a guy on on Instagram, um, and he's one of uh, my my friends' mentors. His name is Brody Fawcett. He's uh, he's big in real estate up in Utah. Like he's huge. Like like he's doing a hell of a lot more than me. Um, he's about 10 years into his career there. Um, he knocked doors, made, made a bunch of money and then went and invested it all. And, uh, he's just killing it, developing Airbnbs, flipping rentals, you name it, he does it. Really? And, um, and so, you know, he, one of his questions on Instagram was, you know, what, when do you think you want to retire or what do you, like, do you want to retire? Um, and or like, what age do you want to retire at or something like that? And I was like, well, what define retire? Right. Yeah. Um, I, like to me, like retirement in, in the old age is like, you know, you retire at 60, 65, do nothing. Right. <laughs> Sit around to me, drink coffee. To me, retiring would be like not having to go work every day for a paycheck. Yeah. And like you, you now you have the choice to go do whatever you want. Um with the money you have. That's right. retiring to me uh, because I don't truly think I could just stop doing things. Yeah. Like I, I couldn't, I just, I could not just sit in a chair and do nothing. Right. Um, I gotta be doing something. And so, um, let's roll that into, yeah. How do you, how, how can you, or how will you evade the rat race? I think that, um, you know, I think ultimately my first answer, the reason why I said it, I think you'd be surprised is my answer is don't. Um, you know, I, I've analyzed a lot, I say a lot, like five or eight businesses where I go in and help people create like estimating softwares or, um, cause I really love Excel. And so I go in and I'll help them and I'll, I've done concrete, I've done dirt work, I've done landscaping, um, obviously fire protection, I create all my own. Um, and, and so what I've noticed is a lot of people have no idea. Uh, how to stay organized and, and do job progress reports and stuff like that. And, and so I look back at how did I learn all that stuff. And, and um, you know, it was by jumping headfirst into the rat race um, and always knowing in the back of my mind, this isn't what I want to do forever. Right. Right. But I'm going to get in here and I'm going to learn it. I'm going to figure it out. I'm going to get a W-2 job. I'm going to go do these things. Um, and then I'm going to see how I can make this system better. Um, and so it's about systemizing. You know, I remember I used to print off drawings. Um on a 32 by 48 or 36 by 48 piece of paper and then I would take everything off by hand with a crayon and I mean it's a pencil crayon and then measure it all with a ruler and then type all that into a computer and I'm talking million dollar worth projects you know millions of dollars like mm-hmm. in, in thousands and thousands of feet of pipe and all this stuff that I drew all by hand and I hated every second of it because I was like I can do all this on a computer and be done way faster and so Whenever I started my own company, that's what I did. I created a software system, and then ultimately when I sold, they all looked at my software system and were like, holy shit, you know, that's the greatest thing since sliced bread. And I was like, yeah, not really, but you know, it's cool. And so now I'm designing the software system inside Summit to turn everything that I had created into a, pl- a platform for them on the cloud so they'll do data report roll-ups and, and everybody can use the same system I built. Um, but, but ultimately, I think the rat race is good for people. I think it, it teaches you something. I think that every single kid needs to go get yelled at and told they're a piece of crap by a boss so they can understand what that feels like on working really hard 
and then getting kicked down and then you know that will build you up ultimately and so I've told so many young guys that in my office that you know they're like I don't understand what I need to do what you need to do is get fired like three or four times and so you realize what life is really about and how hard it is to get a good job with good people you really enjoy and then dude, I had one guy that literally went from he went to every single fire protection company that I could name and then ultimately ended up back here and he was one of my best guys and I just think that he had that bug of always thinking the grass was greener on the other side and he ended up back here and, and a good friend you know like a guy I took to the deer lease and everything and um, but I'm going off on a random tangent but I think the rat race is good for people I think one of the biggest problems of entrepreneurship is everybody thinks they need to have some novel idea or they need to create Apple or Google or I'm going to knock down a billion dollars and it's like no you're not what you know you're going to have these dreams and you're never going to actually do anything or put anything into action because you're always waiting to hit a home run and I hear that all the time well I'm just you know I don't think that's the one yada yada and it's like well if you just get on the field and play ball hit a couple doubles hit a couple singles maybe you strike out like every once in a while you can hit a bomb mm -hmm. right and then like all right that was cool what did I learn from that mm -hmm. but you learn lessons from the singles the doubles the strikeouts um, but that rat race will also teach you a lot about what other people do, how systems work. And you can jump right into the middle of a business organization and turn around and look at it and go, oh, wow, this is how this thing runs, versus trying to start something from scratch that you have no idea what you're doing. Um, very painful, very long-term. Mm -hmm. and, and that's why the you know this is something that they talk about, the, the BlackRock and these private equity guys talk about. The guy that gets you from zero to ten may not be the same guy that gets you 10 to 100 or 100 to a billion and a billion to 5 billion. Those are all different people, right? They can lead that kind of an organization. There's guys that are really good from zero to 10 because you know what the problem is at zero? You have no cash flow, right? So do we need to get the website or do we need to buy the truck? Uh, truck's probably more important, right? But uh, from 100 to a billion, right, 100 million to a billion, there's, you know, HR policies you have to put in place. There's, you know, lawyers that you have to start putting on retainer. There's all these, you know, the, the truck, that's no longer a problem. We have a right. fleet enterprise deal. We get right. 100 of them a month. Who cares, right? And so there's just there's different levels of problems. And I remember I told him that one time. I said, I don't think that anybody here is, uh, and this is a very arrogant statement, but I made it anyways. I said, I don't think anybody here is smarter than I am. I think you solve bigger problems than I do uh, because you're at a different level of the, the organization that I'm at, right? But I don't, and, and the reason I said the statement was because I don't want to be disrespected. Right. I'm never going to disrespect you or them or anybody else, and I, I expect the same level of courtesy out of them. Um, and so I don't mind the rat race. I think that you need to look, like you said about retirement, you need to look and see what do you want out of life, right? What are your goals out of life? How are you going to get there? Uh, devise a plan and conquer to, to knock it down. Um, I think this quote, uh, I heard it on the Joe Rogan podcast, the, that men live lives of quiet desperation. Um, it's so real because so many people don't don't plan and they don't get that opportune moment. Um, I'll give you an instance. You know, a guy has a job. He gets a girlfriend. She gets pregnant. Uh, they have a kid. She gets pregnant again. They have another kid. And then all of a sudden at 30 years old, 35 years old, he turns around and looks. And he hates his job. Probably doesn't love his girlfriend that much. Wife now. Has two kids. But he's up against a wall. Right? Because he has a mortgage. He has a couple of vehicle notes. Uh, he has to have medical insurance for the kids. If he divorces her, she leaves half of everything. And then he has child support for us. So he's in a, a life of quiet desperation because he's pinned. And that's where you begin to see this, this mindset spiral downhill. They're upset every day. They start to eat. They smoke. They, they begin to drink. And, and then you just see them kind of taper downhill. And it's like, how do you avoid that, right? Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, let's say we don't avoid it. Let's say we're in it. How do we get out of it? 
right? Because the, the worst thing you could do is accept your, your environment for what it is and just say, it is what it is, I'm going to live with it. Um, you know, and I think that's the opportunity as a leader that you can see that stuff, you can see the trajectories, and you can try and get these guys and give them a better opportunity, um, which ultimately is kind of the American way to do it. Um, but I, I think that the rat race gets a bad rap. I really do. I think that a lot of people, you know, oh, you work for somebody else, you should work for yourself. It's like, you know, I, I think that there's two sides of it. I like having the W-2 job, the W-2 income. Uh, I like doing stuff on the side. I've always done stuff on the side. Um, it's just kind of the way I've, I've handled it. Right. One of my one of my big quotes here is, just because someone else quit on their dream does not mean you have to quit on yours. And, and I said that to somebody one time because, you know, they were always telling me that, you know, I, I'll never forget, he said, I didn't have the capacity to do what you're fixing to set out to try and do, is what he told me. And that was my answer. What does that mean? So it was before I started the company. And well, what does he mean by I don't have the capacity? So, you know, when you look at someone about a job function, right, you always ask, like, the questions I always ask are, you know, um, do they want it, right? And then do they have the capacity to do it, right? So let, let's say that you wanted to go run Apple, right? Do you have the capacity today to run Apple? Probably not. No. Right? You don't have the coding background. You know, there's a whole lot of experience that it takes. And so there's, there's some people that I've met that have the drive, the motivation, the drive, the will, the desire to win. But it's like they don't have the capacity to handle that position right now, right? And so um, that's what he said was you don't have the capacity to do what you're fixing to go take on and do. Mm. And, and capacity – Oh, he was telling you that. Yeah. Oh, yeah, okay. yeah. Okay. And capacity could mean in the now or it could mean in the long term like you're just not there enough, right? And, and don't get me wrong. We've all met people like – we all have different thresholds of capacity, ability to learn. We're not all created equal. Um, and that's what I said, was just because you quit on your dreams doesn't mean I'm going to quit on mine. Right. And uh, I haven't talked to that guy since. <laughs> I mean, I think that's that's perfect because, like, um, you know, I, and this is – I probably got ahead of myself, um, you know, just jumping and buying two houses and going and flipping them. Like, what the hell? <laughs> I don't know who gave you the money. Um I do, um, uh, but uh, you know the reason they did is because it was collateralized by a good real estate deal. There you go. Um, that's how you know it wasn't me. It was the it was the real estate. It deal. was the horse, not the jockey. Right. <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, very risky. But um, since then they've they've got all their money back and made a lot of money, so it's all good. But uh, um, you know, I think I think a lot of people are are uh, are hindered by that because they 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 know they don't have the capacity. Right? right, so they're like, they're like, well, I have no clue how to do this. So where do I start? Yeah, and I guess um, what's what stops some people from succeeding is is just starting and learning to figure it out, right? And I think which and it I wasn't like in the quote unquote rat race. Yeah, but you know this whole this whole past year, we did four flips, and we were probably net plus twenty grand, and. I didn't see any of it. Chad didn't see any of it. The company ate it up in expenses. And uh, so we worked for free for a year, right? Um, and essentially, that's the rat, that, that was my rat race, um, trying to figure it out, starting from zero and, and building something that I had no idea it was going to go into. Yeah. Um, so I, I think 100% because I just, I just ate dirt for 12 months. Yeah. Right? Still eating dirt. Um, and it is what it is, and I. But I just I realize that I have to to learn and, and get better and put in systems and organization. And I think one of the things you said there though is like with the confidence situation. You know, success breeds success, and the reason why LeBron James plays basketball is because he's good at it. He's not a ballerina dancer because he probably doesn't dance that well. 
Right. Right. And but in order to do this, kind of like the man in the arena quote, right? In order to know, you have to go try. Right. And that's why people ask me all the time, how do you stay calm? How do you you, know, you have a, a level of confidence about you? It's because I've been put in really shitty situations and I've seen myself crawl right out of it. And I just have the confidence that look, I'm gonna figure it out. Yep. Regardless of what you throw at me, regardless of how hard this gets, how complicated networking capital adjustments are, whatever it is. If I do my homework, I read, I research, and I learn, and I ask the right questions, I will it figure it out. Yeah, yeah I'm not going to die over it, you know. Yeah. And so, but it, it comes that confidence is built over being battle tested time and time and time again, and going through coronavirus and going through, you know, having to go to the bank and, and get a um, line of credit loan and, and you know going through lawsuits and doing all this stuff is it's like you just you begin to build that resiliency up. Um, and that's that goes back to the jockey versus the horse. Investors look at the jockey. The horse is second. Right. The first thing I want to know about is right. how's my jockey? Yep. You know what I mean? And then, all right, let's talk about the horse. Yeah. If you have a really, really good real estate deal, a really good car, and still crash it on the off the bridge. Oh, yeah. Like, easy. Yeah. Easy. Look at Theranos. I don't know what that is. Oh, you don't know what Theranos is? I don't know what Theranos Elizabeth is. Holmes. Uh-uh. Uh, she just got locked up for a while. She was. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. You know, about the blood. Dose sampling and I don't know. I don't know any any specifics. So I mean, essentially, just long story short, she was saying that you could do a prick of a finger, similar to what you do for like a glucose test, uh, and you could analyze that that blood dropping on a spectrum to to run a hundred data points to tell you everything. I don't know if you do annual checkups, but I do an annual checkup every year. I get my blood drawn, and they run it through the ringer, right? And they're looking at every PSA analysis and all this stuff. And uh, she was claiming that she had the technology to run that droplet of blood, which is groundbreaking, right? I mean, you know, in terms of, you know, medical analysis, the ability to prick my finger at my house and run it through a spectrum and get back 100 data points at my house, sitting at my computer, is absolutely, you know, that we're 100 years from that. Right. And so she was claiming she had all this stuff. And and uh, <clears throat> as an investor or as a, as a, you know, an entrepreneur, if you will, founder, um, where she went wrong was she lied. She claimed that she had all these... Uh, contracts with the U.S. military. She was contracted with, um, you know, CVS and Walgreens and all this stuff. And I mean, ultimately, she's going to land herself in jail for twenty years. Um, and there's a because she wasn't. Oh yeah, it was all a lie. It was all fake. Yeah, you can't do that. And that was the thing. And, and that's what's kind of funny now. Like in hindsight, is all the big guys. You know, like if you're a if you're an investor, right? Like I, I told you about an investment I made into a, a software company, right? Well, I followed a software engineer who owns a software development company. Right, because he did all the due diligence on it, and mm-hmm. then he came back and said, "Look, I'm writing a check, so I go in and I do my 10% due diligence." And I was like, "Look, if you're gonna write a check, then I'll write a check." You know what I mean? And mm-hmm. so we kind of we both partnered up on that. Well, everybody that invested, not one of them are biotech. And it's like, okay, which one of you geniuses over here, out of all you family offices that were writing tens of hundreds of millions of dollars of checks, y'all didn't call the biotech private equity guys and say, "Hey." Like, what's the problem? Why aren't you investing? You know what I mean? I was like, how did this thing spiral out of control? But the problem was is the media framed her as like the next Steve Jobs. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of what they put her up on this pedestal as is she's, you know, the greatest thing. And then and so it was like FOMO. Exactly. Well, then she turned it on them and was like, I'm giving you the opportunity to invest. I'm not asking for your money. So when you asked for due diligence and said, hey, can I see underneath the skirt? She said, if you want to see all that, I'm just going to go somewhere else. And that's what she kept doing to people. And so, and that's what they played out in court where it was like, well, but what due diligence did you really see? Well, we saw this one packet. Well, 
did she lie inside that packet, right? And so, I mean, ultimately they nailed her, and she's going to go to jail for probably 20 years. But, mm. um, yeah, I don't know how we got off on the Theranos uh, topic. But it's all good. Anyways, um, you said you had some surprise questions. So I love surprises. Um, well, I just have two. Um, one of them is what... Like when when he, when you say hey I want to I want to be successful or when somebody says hey I want to be successful or when somebody says you know they are very successful um, what does success mean to you? Yeah, I think that um, it is in the eyes of the beholder, right? I think everybody has their own vision of success. I think for me, it's financial freedom, um, being able to do what you want uh, with who you want when you want to do it. Um, is a big part of it. Being able to pass down uh, that legacy, if you will, to further generations. Um, being able to help out others. And one of the first things I did when I sold the company is I went and I gave back a scholarship uh, to my hometown uh, to two people that were going to, to A&M, uh, one for aerospace engineering, uh, one to be a, uh, to be a nurse. And uh, that was pretty cool. And I think that, um, you know, it was a lot of people tie success to finance, you know, and, and financial freedom. Um, and that makes sense, right? But it also, because you can have all the money in the world, but if you don't have the time, then what good does it do, matter, right? Yeah. If you have all the time in the world, like retirement, but you don't need money, then all you do is sit on the couch and you can't do anything. Yep. So I think those two things equal success. I think that um, I look at things, I break a lot of things down as an equation, right? And, and so inside equations are variables, right? And, and one plus one equals two, right? Well, inside the equation of success or inside the equation of happiness, money is a very large variable inside that equation, right? There's things like friends, there's family, there's health, there's time. All those are variables inside that equation, but you multiply that times money, right? And if you multiply it times zero, what is a multiple times zero? Zero. Zero, right. And so and I'm not saying that money equals happiness because it doesn't. Money along with all these other variables coupled in together can get you to happiness. Um, but I also think that one of the things that, that I hate about our society is that people are allowed to change their minds. You know, like, like Trump used to get ridiculed over changing his mind. Well, it's like, well, you know, whenever you get in there and you learn a few more facts and you understand a few more things, you're allowed to change your mind. And it's the same thing goes with your, with your life and your job. And, you know, it's like, that's one of the, you know, people go to, to engineering school and they get out and they're like, I hate being an engineer. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm an engineer. And it's like, okay, that's fine. Well, wish you to figure that out before you spent five years uh, doing this, you know. Um, and that's why it's beneficial for some of these. I went and I did a, a tour at the, the local high schools here um, and, and got to see what those kids are doing. They're building stuff. They're, they're doing way more than I ever dreamed of doing in ag school with, you know, they're doing framing and mechanical, electrical, plumbing and, and all this welding and all we did just was to build. figure out what they want to do. Yeah, oh, I hate welding. All right, cool. Next, you know, it's like I, we built trailers and deer feeders. Um, had no idea what I wanted to do, <laughs> and so I went to college because my parents conned me into it with a vehicle, and then I wanted power lift. And uh, other than that, I was going to work. Really? Yeah. Yeah, I wouldn't sit on college. I didn't care. Um, and now I have two master's degrees. It's crazy. But um, yeah, so I think that's that's the thing with success is define your equation. Live life by design. Don't be afraid to pivot. Um, that's a, that's a big part of it. That's that's a good point about changing your mind. I think uh, I think it's so ridiculed because and they, people call it hypocritical when you mm-hmm. when you start changing your mind. Um, and it's just you know it's 
it's like uh, oh, what, what am I, I don't know what I'm trying to say. Look um, at the CDC; they do it all the time. <laughs> there you go. There you go. There you go. Um, oh, I gotta think about. I had my. I have one more question. All right. I gotta think about it. No, you're good. No. Let me think about it. I had it in my head before you went. Damn. It's gone. It's gone. I should write it down. No, I write everything down. It was, what does success mean to you and... Oh, I got it. All right. What keeps you moving every day? What keeps you going? That's tough. Why do you do yeah. what you do? Yeah. I think that, um, you know, obviously the, the motivate and inspire others through action is, is a big portion of it. Um, I think that, it, I think I sent you this text. It was that, um, you know, one of the hell on earth is the, the day you die, you know, and then the, the life you could have lived uh, gets shown to you uh, mm-hmm. as you stand there before him. And, uh, you know, that's terrifying. Uh, if that doesn't wake you up, I don't know what will. Um, but, you know, it's kind of living life to the full potential. You know, we were given a gift. Everybody was given a different gift. And, and why not use that to the fullest extent that you can? You only get one life here. Um, and, and that doesn't mean that you need to run yourself in the ground and, and, you know, go, 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 and be sporadic and, you know, and just drain all your energy. Um, but it, go, it goes back to living life by design and, and having key set points, key achievements you want to achieve, celebrate those achievements, spend time with those you want to spend time with, um, and be intentional with your actions. But that, that's what keeps me going is knowing that um, I've seen the success that I've gotten thus far with the energy and the effort that I've put into it. Um, and, you know, I wrote uh, part of a book one time uh, and then whenever I got fired, um, it stayed there on that mm. laptop so I don't have access to it. Um, Damn. And I, I remember, um, you know, I remember a lot of it, but I, I, the title of it, and I can't remember exactly what it was, but it was like the compounding interest of success, knowledge, and wealth. And, you know, because everybody always thinks of compound interest in terms of money, mm-hmm. but it's also in success and it's also in knowledge mm-hmm. um, because, you know, don't get me wrong, you forget stuff. But as you begin to get, take leaps, you go further and further and further and further, right? Um, and so that, that's kind of what keeps me going is being able to look back whenever you do those reflection moments and you say, man, look at where I'm at. And it's like, all right, well, I'm 30. Imagine where I could be. Right. You know, imagine how many more lives I can affect. Imagine how much more money I can make. Imagine, you know, what I can do, uh, the life that I can provide for, for my kids and others. And um, I think that that's what keeps me going. Good answer. Good answer. I don't like surprise questions. <laughs> <laughs> I can tell. Uh, I mean, it's obvious. Look at this. Mm-hmm. Good Lord. Um, I think that's good. I think we are sitting right around two hours, 40 minutes, and this is probably the longest episode I've ever done. I think the, the other, the longest one was, I think it was an hour and a half, was the longest I've done before. One-on-one? Yeah. Okay. So uh, it may have, been, may have been three of us, but uh, we'll see. We'll see, uh, we'll see if uh, our next guest beats you. Who's that? Um, uh You'll see Friday. Oh, okay. We'll That's see right. Friday. That's right. We'll see, uh, and all of you will see Friday too as well. So that'll be a good one. And um, I appreciate y'all listening, and thanks for coming on. Absolutely. Appreciate the time.
Fuck what they talk about. I've been getting my cake and running wild since a little child. Yeah. Getting it every day, I'm working sun up till the sun down. Yeah. I'm getting it every day, these niggas hating, trying to see how I do this shit. Bitch, I'm not new.